1: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Between 1933 and 1945, Nazi Germany and its allies established more than 44,000 camps, subcamps, and various incarceration sites. These locations were used for a wide range of purposes, but the most horrific is the one we all associate with the word Holocaust today, the mass murder of Jews and other minorities in gas chambers by Nazi Germany. Of the 9 million Jews who lived in Europe before the Holocaust, an estimated two-thirds were murdered. Though the scale of mass killing was new, the prejudice that led to it was not. Jews in Europe had been victims of discrimination and persecution since the Middle Ages, mostly for religious reasons. Christians saw the Jewish faith as an aberration that had to be quashed. In addition to being attacked and killed, Jews were sometimes forced to convert or not allowed to practice certain professions. In the 19th century, new, more hateful theories about the Jewish people were born. They weren't just members of a different faith. They weren't even fully human. Even Jews who converted to Christianity were still different because of their bloodline. They were still other someone that doesn't belong. And then in the 1920s and 1930s, Hitler and the Nazis took anti-Semitism even further still. They added a new layer of blame to all this garbage. They preached that it was the Jews' fault that Germany had lost World War I. It was a Jewish conspiracy against Germans that was still preventing Germany from thriving as a nation. It was the Jews' fault that Germany lay in economic ruins. Hitler's hatred of Judaism truly knew no bounds. And he would spend that hatred, sadly, uh, spread it to an all too willing audience. As early as August 1920, Hitler compared the Jews to germs. He stated the diseases cannot be controlled unless you destroy their causes. The influence of the Jews would never disappear without removing its cause, the Jew from our midst, he'd write. He'd soon share ideas like, uh, you know, that in political speeches, speeches audiences thunderously applauded. These radical ideas, embraced by an alarming amount of the German non-Jewish population, directly paved the way for the mass murder of the Jews in the 1940s, the dark historical event we now know as the Holocaust. Sometimes it's also referred to as the Shoah, though that usually refers more specifically to just the Jewish victims, while the Holocaust refers to the overall killing plan developed and enacted by the Nazis. In general, the term Holocaust refers to the mass killing of any group by any government. But because the Nazi Holocaust was so horrifying, on such a previously unimaginable scale, the word Holocaust has come to be almost exclusively associated with the killing of Jews by Nazi Germany. And it started long before the gas chambers. As early as 1933, Hitler and the Nazis, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, began passing a series of discriminatory laws against Jews, inch by inch, chipping away at their freedoms and humanity. They took away their property, Their ability to practice certain jobs or exist in public places. They took away their ability to own pets or walk around without a badge identifying them as Jews. And they did all this while the world watched, while everyone hoped that maybe they'd finally just stop with all their mindless hate. But instead, they kept pushing it further and further and further. Soon the Nazis began deporting Jews, sending them out of Germany into various labor camps. Then the plan changed from one of deportation to genocide and concentration camps were constructed to more efficiently kill massive amounts of people. The majority of people deported to these new death camps were transported in cattle wagons. These wagons traveling along train tracks didn't have water, food, a toilet, or ventilation. Sometimes there weren't enough cars for major transport, so victims waited at a switching yard, often with standing room only for several days at a time, stewing in their own filth, fear, confusion, and hunger. Sometimes when the train finally made it to the concentration camp and the transport doors were opened, everyone inside was already dead. This is the kind of inhumane shit we'll be exploring and covering today. So important to keep discussing the Holocaust, to keep its memory alive as its last survivors now die of old age. Soon, very soon, there will be no one left who actually remembers being there and seeing it firsthand. All we will have are their stories. As we'll find out next week, there are already a large amount of Holocaust deniers living in our midst. How many more will there be once everyone who survived its horrors have passed on? The Holocaust is arguably the single most important example in recent history, if not all history, of how important it is to think critically and point out and denounce dangerous ignorance if we don't want our world to devolve into mindless violence and hate. So let's talk Holocaust on another dark as fuck, historical atrocity, never forget how thoroughly, seemingly normal people can dehumanize others edition of Time Suck.
0: This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the Cult of the Curious Zach curiosity is such an important attribute in the never-ending fight against ignorance i'm dan cummins the master sucker strong pony boy putin's vocal coach uh rodney alcala's legal defense strategist and you are listening to time suck hail nimrod i love you lucifina praise bojangles and sing our troubles away triple m a couple quick announcements and then uh well you know a lot of horror uh in the store now Before we get to the horror, uh, at badmagicmerch.com is a bunch of stuff all related to this summer's Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp this August 19th through the 21st. Uh, General admission tickets still available. There's a whole variety of items in the store. Hats, flip-flops, a backpack, t-shirts, tank tops, condoms, vibrators, jetpacks, sex robots, time machines, and more. Maybe not some of those last things, but so many things. And it's all limited edition. Uh, Order by mid-July to make sure you have it in time for camp. Uh, Now let's talk philanthropy. Bad Magic Productions donation for May is the Halo Dental Network founded by Dr. Brady Smith. Halo Dental Network is a coalition of dental professionals who donate their services to the dental underserved. Uh, services include dental implants, veneers, fillings, and crowns. If you want to learn more, please visit halodentalnetwork.org. Not only can you donate now, uh, to, you can also nominate someone who, uh, that you know is, uh, is in need and you can offer your services. If you are a dental professional, thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we here uh, and at Bad Magic, or I'm sorry, between Time Suck Here and Scared to Death, able to give them $14,300 with another 1600 being set aside for the Cummins Family Scholarship. Uh, all in all, we've been able to donate over $400,000 to a variety of worthy causes. So hail fucking Nimrod. Very proud of that. Uh, thanks to everyone who has uh, made that possible. One more piece of good news before we descend into madness. Hoping that I had a blast doing nine shows in Salt Lake City this past week. Thanks to everyone who bought a ticket. Uh, Feels very, very nice for so many people to want to come out and catch a show. Uh, Before taking a three-month break for the summer, Uh, I'll also be in Springfield, Missouri, May 26th to the 28th. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, June 2nd to the 4th. Davenport, Iowa, one show only on June 10th. Chicago, uh, Illinois, two shows, June 11th. One sold out, Uh, tickets available for the 2nd. All upcoming dates with ticket links at DanCummins.tv, Got a lot of stuff in the fall as well. And that's it for announcements. Uh, For a podcast that covers some of the worst events known to human history, today's topic might just end up taking the cake for being the very darkest, Uh, the very worst. We won't be covering any type of torture, torment, or death that we haven't already covered before. Unit 731 quickly comes to mind. Uh, But this episode might technically be the worst simply because of the sheer scale of death and torment uh, and the incredibly cold, methodical, and state-sponsored methods used to kill so many people, so many children, in such a public and inhumane way. So many Germans and other Europeans had to actively help Hitler, work with Hitler and his goons to pull off the Holocaust, which is why it tops list after list of the worst mass atrocities in the history of mankind. The Holocaust was a systematic, bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of roughly 6 million Jewish men, women, and children by the Nazi regime and its collaborators and the systematic execution of around 5 million additional people that the Nazis found to be undesirable because of their political, ethnic, or ideological affiliations, or because they were prisoners of war. Over 11 million people at least. New exhaustive research the past few decades completed by institutions like the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum put the total figure of innocent people killed by the Nazis, non-combatants, at closer to 20 fucking million people. 20 million! most of them Slavic Russians. Nazis wanted to burn down the world, rebuild it in their own evil image. And they wanted to burn uh, no group down more than the Jewish people. The biggest cornerstone of Nazi ideology fueling their war efforts was anti-Semitism. The Nazis who came to power in Germany in January of 1933 believed that Germans were racially superior and they wanted to create a racially pure state. Jews deemed to be an inferior race, a totally separate class of people, were considered an alien threat the so-called German racial community? How do they convince a nation of almost 70 million to help them pursue this idiotic and heinous plan? Why would millions more in other nations also help them? Today, we learn how the Nazis' killing machine was built over many years, many years of propaganda and lies, uh, of pushing things into darkness, not all at once, but step by evil step. To explore this incredibly complex topic, a topic that could have several podcast series in its own right, uh, we'll first look into the roots of anti-Semitism and how Nazis arrived at their genocidal plan. Then we'll spend the majority of today's episode in a time-suck timeline of many of the key events of the Holocaust. Then in part two, next week, we'll dive into Holocaust deniers, how Germany has dealt with this legacy of murder, and much more. Let's get started. The Holocaust could easily be an entire podcast series of its own, uh, several podcast series. Actually, there already are several podcast series dedicated to the Holocaust. Uh, Of course, there are, as there should be. Such an important topic and one with years and years of information, uh, information that, you know, many people are still uncovering uh, to try and comprehend if you want to dive that deep. Uh, That's not, of course, what we'll be doing here today. Uh, We'll get into a lot of info, but compared to an entire podcast devoted to this subject, you know, we'll just be dipping our toes in. Uh, It's simply impossible to go over everything that went into, you know, decades of marginalization and the extermination in nazi germany in in less than three hours Uh, that said i'm proud of how much information we'll be able to share this week and what i think is a a pretty compelling narrative first we'll explore the roots of anti-semitism in europe and how the quote jewish question became a rally point for many europeans over the 19th century trickled into of course the 20th century and then how nazi germany developed a terrifying answer to the jewish question one that eventually became their plan to murder all of europe's jews then we'll spend the bulk of this episode in a timeline detailing the progression of the Holocaust, how the Nazis came to power, started blaming things like economic conditions and crises on the Jews, and then started enforcing discriminatory laws that marked Jews as others in the places where they'd grown up and lived, oftentimes their entire lives. And of course, we'll cover the horrifying mass exterminations that took place at the concentration camps and in villages as German killing squads roved the countryside and the Soviet Union, murdering hundreds of thousands. Millions of additional Jewish people, well, millions of additional people, hundreds of thousands of additional Jewish people, uh, might surprise you that genocide was not the Nazis' first answer to the so-called Jewish question. Initially, they wanted to force the Jewish people to eat their delicious pork schnitzel and play handball. And when they refused, you know, they were fucking pissed. No, of course not. No, initially they wanted to deport them. They didn't want them dead, not at first. They wanted them gone. Unfortunately, so did a lot of other people in pre-World War II Europe. The Jewish question had featured heavily in political discourse and debate in Europe, going back to the French Revolution. The revolution had given French Jews full equality and citizenship, removing all the legal restrictions they had suffered for centuries under nations and empires beholden to the Catholic Church and later their offshoots, enabling Jews to come out of the ghetto at the dawn of the 19th century. In the legal and geographical sense, it had brought them political dignity and equal rights. A lot of people didn't like that. A little note on the concept of the Jewish ghetto the pull from our own previous research from Suck 171 on the Warsaw Ghetto, the concept of the ghetto goes back to the 13th century in Europe. Ghettos came out of European separation laws dating back to the 1200s when Jews were persecuted by an aggressively intolerant Catholic church and were only allowed to live in assigned quarters, quarters that always seemed to be located in the shittiest part of the cities or, you know, shitty areas just outside the cities. And the term originally applied to Jewish racial, uh, racial segregation. Linguists think the actual term ghetto probably comes from Italy in the 16th century. The Venetian Jewish ghetto of uh, Canaraggio. Uh, Canaragio perhaps uh, was established on March 29th, 1516. And ghetto probably derived from the Italian word borghetto, meaning a settlement outside of a city's walls. Now, after the revolution, the granting of citizenship to Jews marked a break with age-old prejudice and persecution in the Christian West. In the wake of the French Revolution, ideas in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, originally published in 1789, Uh, In the Civil Code of the French, a.k.a. the Napoleonic Code, originally published in 1804, spread through Europe, and Jewish emancipation was achieved in several countries. Initially, these were states created by the French conquest led by Napoleon, places like the uh, Batvian uh, Republic, uh, Kingdom of Westphalia, France's ally Prussia, before spreading to other countries like Sweden, Britain, and Russia. Not everyone, of course, were in favor of this new equality. Many academics, statesmen, philosophers still believed there was a Jewish question that needed to be answered. Namely, how are Jews going to live in a Christian state? How is the Christian state supposed to treat Jews? Should Jews be allowed to be full citizens? In 1843, the German theologian and philosopher Bruno Bauer published The Jewish Question in which he examined the compatibility of the Jewish religion with the political and legal framework of Christian states. In 1844, in his commentary on The Jewish Question, Karl Marx proposed a radical response to this problem. Jews should merge into the universal and abandon the particularism of their culture and religion, which perhaps more so than Christian religions, contributed to alienating and marginalizing Jewish individuals in Western societies. Interesting proposal. Uh, what if all the religious people in the world abandoned their religions and we all entered into the same belief system? How long would that last? Uh, is humanity capable of all agreeing about something like that? I do not think so at all. I do not think we'll ever all agree on something like that. I think Marx's biggest flaw was a fundamental lack of understanding of human nature. If we were all programmable robots and not mercurial emotional animals, I think many of Marx's ideas would work beautifully. Uh, As emancipation progressed, the Jewish question became a full Jewish problem for prejudiced Europeans who believed that the success of emancipation and the integration of Jews was a threat. They argued that Jews, having emerged from the ghettos to become full citizens, were now hard to distinguish from anyone else. They'd often changed their surnames, even adopted non-Jewish first names. They had converted sometimes, moved into Christian neighborhoods. I love that they saw this type of of integration as a problem. Like if these other humans looked and behaved just like them, you know? Like, oh, now, how are we going to know who they are now? Like, why the fuck would it matter at that point? Amazes me how many members of our species have such strong convictions about shit that they clearly have not thought through. Now, well, Uh, these fuckheads thought the Jews were going to change and subvert traditional Christian societies, or as popular race science held at the time, they were going to negatively alter the racial body of the state. Again, what are they fucking talking about? Like, why should anyone ever concern themselves with race? You know, character, character should matter so much more. Uh, Color, who gives a fuck about, you know, color? A lot of people still do, unfortunately. And unfortunately, back then, uh, you know, color and character were uh, strongly associated with one another. Uh, Through the 19th century, these arguments got stronger and stronger. And with it, a push to establish that Jews were a separate biological category. They were human-ish, kind of like a monkey. You know, a lot of really smart minds thinking shit like this back in the 19th century. Uh, Sadly, still have a lot of these wonderful minds around today. So this meant that true integration in their eyes was impossible. Right? According to a popular German phrase in the 19th century, a Jew stays a Jew. So just mindless tribalism. The history of humanity never has a shortage of that. Not back in the 1800s or 1900s or today. Good old us versus them. And it doesn't really matter who the them are in that equation, other than they're not us. And us is fucking great. Because us has me. And I'm me. And I'm part of us. And I'm great. But them, not me. Therefore, less than, not great. Because only me and mine is best. Uh, overall, our species, I think, uh, is very selfish and short-sighted, as is every other species. Really, I mean, evolution-wise, the strong survive, and the strong often have had to be selfish to survive, to stay strong. They've avoided the weak, or taken their shit and/or killed them to thrive. Sorry, I get uh, I could get way off fucking track with that whole line of philosophical reasoning. Refocusing, I covered a lot of this as it pertains to the rise of anti-Semitism leading up to World War II early on in the third bonus episode of time Timesuck, uh, recorded in early 2017. Hitler's Third Reich: How did it happen? In Germany, the journalist Wilhelm Marr popularized the word anti-Semitism during the 1870s not as a negative way to call out prejudice, but as a way to positively identify uh, the anti-Jewish movement. So, you know, it actually was a very negative thing. Uh, The League of Anti-Semites would be established in 1879, hardening the idea that Jews were a biological foreign body that didn't belong in racially pure nation states. And members of this league, I will say, uh, you know, they at least had their hearts in the right places. I mean, overall, they were great people. They opened meetings with hugs, little social games like uh, look to the person to your left, tell them why they're special. Uh, they would close meetings with prayers for world peace, universal empathy, uh, greater understanding, tolerance, and love. And in a given meeting, you routinely hear phrases like, uh, huh, I hadn't thought of it that way before. Thanks for offering me a new perspective. And maybe I am wrong. I don't know. No one has all the answers. We can all learn from one another if we keep open minds. No, of course not. Uh, these motherfuckers were arrogant, closed minded Ignorant fuckfaces. Uh, Sadly, though, far from being repulsive, their ideas attracted the attention of popular and highly regarded intellectuals of the day. In 1881, the economist Eugene During published the Jewish question as a question of race, customs, and culture, with an answer relating to world history. His ideas were then reproduced by fanatical propagandists like Theodore Fritsch, or Fritsch, author in 1887 of An Anti-Semitic Catechism, republished in 1907 under the title Handbook of the Jewish Question. Anti-Semitic texts like these proposed a definitive solution to the Jewish question. As uh, Eugene During wrote in 1881, details varied from author to author, but the basis of the solution was always the same. Removal of the Jews. While some, like Karl Marx, advocated the Jews should just disappear uh, as, you know, religious Jews, elevating themselves to a a rational civic universality by banning their culture and religion, uh, anti-Semites argued that it was impossible for Jews to disappear as Jews by becoming Christian, for example. They argued they had to disappear altogether, at least geographically, go somewhere else. The most extreme argued they had to disappear biologically uh, from the earth. Uh, To achieve these aims, various solutions were proposed, which basically advocated a return to the situation before the French Revolution for some, uh, limited civil rights, uh, social, physical ghettoization, numerous legal restrictions. The Jews were not seen as citizens of the nations that were forming in the 19th century by all these anti-Semites their number was legion, uh, but as foreign guests of these nations, making them not entitled to the same rights as ordinary citizens. Given the progress of emancipation and the successful integration of the Jewish population, some anti-Semites advocated radical solutions to curb further Jewish integration progress, inspired by the racial science of the time. For example, restricting numbers through forced sterilization. And now many of Europe's Jewish people started to fucking worry that these anti-Semites weren't just talking shit. As their ideas became more popular, They started to be concerned and they started to try to get the fuck out of Europe. Uh, Theodore Herzl, founder of the Zionist movement, published Jewish State in 1896, advocating for a new Jewish nation state where Jews would have a permanent home and not have to worry about all this insanity. The Protestant theologian Johann Friedrich uh, Hiemann followed in his footsteps in 1897 with the path to a definitive solution to the Jewish question, advocating for the creation of a Jewish nation state in the Middle East. The Zionist arguments and plans would provoke a lot of debate. Some anti-Semites believed this was undoubtedly the best way of getting rid of the Jews, while others, obsessed by the notion of a Jewish conspiracy or some kind of Jewish international cabal, feared that a concentration of Jews in the Middle East would create a kind of uh, Jewish Vatican, much more powerful than the Catholic Virgin, which would become the military headquarters for future world domination, right? Hello, Illuminati! Belief in a secret Jewish cabal controlling the world's government has been a popular war cry of paranoid dipshits ever since. Let's now briefly recap the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party. That's subject of bonus suck number three. How do they play into all this? Nazi party founded by the German workers party by not Hitler, but by Anton Drexler, a Munich locksmith, kind of a part-time locksmith, uh, 1919. And this Drexler cat, what a fucking stud this guy was. Holy shit. Uh, deemed medically unfit to fight for Germany in World War I, he then went on to not make enough money as a locksmith to pay his bills possibly because he was lazy and untalented so he then supplemented right, by playing the zither in beer halls, have you heard the zither? holy shit <laughs> fucking, fucking zither bro god you know old Direction was a hit with the ladies no one gets more action than a zither plucker Mm. Sadly, 1920, Drexler died. He drowned. Drowned in a sea of puss. J.K., of course J.K. Nothing keeps the dangers of puss away like a zither. Uh, Actually, he died in 1942 at the age of 57, drank himself to death after basically toiling in obscurity for a few decades after Hitler took his party away from him. Sounds about right. Adolf Hitler attended one of Drexler's, uh, you know, uh, early meetings, and before long, his energy and oratorical skills would enable him to take over the party, as I stated which was renamed the Nationalist-Socialist German Workers' Party 1920. That year, Hitler also formulated a 25-point program that would become the permanent basis for the party. Mainly thought to be drawn up to win over the working class from communism and social democracy, the 25-point program adopted some of the rhetoric and ideas of the left, such as the struggle against war profiteers, nationalization of major industries, but also embraced the nationalistic anti-Semitism of the ethnic national right, uh, who defined uh, a people as a homogeneous body, a pure racial and biological, uh, you know, uh, unity articles four and five of the program proclaimed only a member of the Volk can be a citizen. A member of the Volk can only be one who is of German blood without consideration of creed. Consequently, no Jew can be a member of the Volk. A lot of people back then worried about racial purity under this program. A Jew could live in Germany only as a guest and must be under the authority of legislation for foreigners. So it began with the Nazis. Anti-Semitism, as we've established, had been around in Europe for centuries, had been growing more and more severe. Historically, in addition to ghettos, the worst representations of it had typically been expressed in pogroms. Regional explosions of violence in which Jews were killed and Jewish establishments looted, uh, sometimes sanctioned by the state, sometimes not. Hitler didn't like this. He wanted anti-Semitism to be more structured. He wanted it uh, to be more precise and clear and led solely by the state. As Hitler declared, the Nazis rejected emotional anti-Semitism. The anti-Semitism they practiced, they considered a rational one. Oh boy, rational racism. What an oxymoron. Uh, According to Hitler, pogroms achieved nothing except destruction and chaos. Only with the direction, control, and militarization of the state could Germany achieve quite simply the total removal of the Jews, as he wrote. By 1921, Hitler had already ousted the party's other leaders, right? Fucking this guy's gone. He's taken over uh, from, you know, that guy and some of that guy's uh, former cronies. Again and again, with ex- uh, escalating aggression, his speeches emphasize how all of the catastrophic circumstances that Germany has been facing, uh, defeat in World War I, the 1918 Revolution, the Treaty of Versailles, hyperinflation, and much more, all the fault to the Jews. Uh, the Jews, who comprised less than 1% of Germany's total population at this time, they made a great scapegoat. Right, they were they were different. There weren't enough of them to fight back properly if targeted, but there were enough of them to be a proper target in people's eyes, Uh, with zero evidence. Hitler asserted time and time again that the Jews were actively working against the state, which makes no fucking sense. A conspiracy to bring down the German army and bring the socialists and communists uh, uh, into power, and people bought it. Membership numbers hard to ascertain in the first few comparatively unorganized years of the party's formation, but we know that the Nazi Party's membership grew from twenty five thousand in 1925 to about 180,000 in 1929. Clearly hit, uh, Hitler's hateful messages resonated with a lot of disenfranchised and angry people. The interwar years economy was in the toilet. Uh, there's probably a lot of you know uh, uneducated, angry Germans hearing this message and liking it. The Great Depression uh, then brought the Nazi party a huge influx of new angry members and real political power. From 1929 to 1932, the, partly, the party vastly increased its membership and voting strength. Uh, Its vote in elections from the German four or two, the German parliament increased from 800,000 votes in 1928 to about 14 million in July of 1932. Nazi party quickly emerged as Germany's largest voting bloc and they quickly used their new might to get the Jews out of Germany. From 1933 to 1941, Nazi policy was summed up in a notorious slogan of theirs. Very simple slogan, just two words, Jews out. Not very subtle, uh, didn't hide their hate. Uh, This is the party that now had become Germany's most popular. The party who chanted Jews out at rallies. Important thing to understand about the Nazis in Germany was, uh, you know, how blatantly horrific and popular they were. And what had the Jewish people done to bring this hate onto themselves? Mostly, honestly, they refused to accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Uh, They believed Christians followed the wrong prophets. Not aggressive about that belief, but the belief existed. And that belief felt insulting. And they worshiped differently. They often looked different. Many men had beards when most Christians didn't, shit like that, and it was enough. Uh, They remind me of homophobics now, right? Someone doesn't believe in the same kind of sexual limitations that I do. The limitations that my God has imposed on me, well, fuck them. Get the gays out of our schools. Get them out of our society. Some of you might not like me uh, hearing, uh, hearing me make that parallel, but to me, it's pretty clear and something that concerns me because if you believe in science, which I do, Then you understand that you have no more control over your sexual persuasion than you do over what religion, culture, or ethnicity you're born into. Straight kids can't just be turned gay. Uh, That's some conversion therapy, wackadoodle bullshit propaganda. A form of Nazism can rise up anywhere when you normalize hatred of those born differently than you. Starts off with the removal of some rights, cultural classification of being different, less than, then left unchecked. Uh, Grown through more hate, more time, it can eventually turn into extermination. From a biological point of view, the Nazis argued Jews were not only foreign, but also dangerous because they were contaminating. They had to be driven out from the German race. And it's Liebenstrom, that stupid fucking notion of living space we've talked about in the Few Past Sucks, the idiotic notion that it was uh, Aryan destiny to spread out around the world and displace other inferior cultures, a notion that existed before Hitler. Uh, after 1933, Nazis passed laws and decrees to make uh, Germany a state that was free of or purified of Jews. More than 400 laws would now ban Jews from doing business, owning property, owning pets. Couldn't even own pets. Jesus Christ. What what would they do with that fucking dog uh, when left to their own devices? Uh, Forbidden from entering an ever increasing number of public spaces. Still in the 1930s, the murder of millions of people was unthinkable, probably, even for the most ardent Nazis. uh, If if only logistically. Uh, Clearly, though, the road to killing Jews had already been pretty much completely paved by this point. They're being framed as subhuman, not worthy of the same rights other humans have. They're being framed as a walking, breathing pestilence, a plague. And isn't it a good thing to rid oneself, one's culture, of a plague? Extermination, looking back now, seemed almost inevitable back in 1933. Context and plans were now slowly evolving for the Nazis to develop their so-called final solution, the plan to murder Jews systematically in concentration camps. By 1938, many Jews were leaving Germany, as planned. I mean, who could fucking blame them? But the country itself had now expanded. To annexation of the Sudetenland, a historical German name for the northern, southern, and western areas of former Czechoslovakia, uh, which were inhabited primarily by uh, Sudeten Germans, and also by the annexation of Austria, with Austria and the Sudetenland, you know, two hundred thousand more Jews now suddenly fell under Nazi jurisdiction, more than the total number of Jews who had already immigrated out of Germany since 1933. They're trying to get rid of them now. They have more, right? Nazis. They wanted these people fucking out too. And now they become more emboldened, more aggressive and hateful and uh, not willing to wait as long to get them out. Now, instead of a slow repression by the law, the Nazis turned to harsher methods. In Austria, Nazis set up the Central Office for Jewish Immigration in Vienna, run by Lieutenant Colonel Adolf Eichmann, who was considered an expert on the Jewish question. And why was he considered an expert? Because like a lot of other Nazis, he was fucking brilliant. He was a brilliant champion after first flunking out of college, then going to a vocational school. He then dropped out of that uh, and went to work for his daddy, like a fucking champion does. And then this skinny, dork-looking motherfucker, guy who looked like he probably cried after sex and talked about his mommy, a guy who I imagine didn't have a big social circle, he found a community of other rejects who had somehow become strong, led by art school reject and fellow dropout micro Hitler. Uh, Looking into the Nazis, it is such a terrifying reminder that you don't have to be fucking smart to become powerful. It's not always the cool kids uh, becoming powerful. A charismatic and hateful leader looks like a fucking dork with a weird-ass mustache rallying together a bunch of ignorant, hateful fucking moron losers. Those dumb fucks collectively can take over a nation and have taken over nations. Education, education, education. We must work to make a quality education affordable for all, or we can let our culture become a fucking dumpster fire, where shit like Nazism becomes possible, you know, or that. Uh, The expulsion of Austrian Jews was immediate and brutally efficient. In November 1938, Reinhard Heydrich, high-ranking German SS and police official, another principal architect of the Holocaust, was pleased to announce the departure of 45,000 Jews in record time. The Anti-Semitic laws of Germany were immediately applied to Austria, including the Nuremberg Nuremberg Laws of 1935, laws that did shit like forbid marriage, even intercourse between Jews and Germans. German women under 45 couldn't work in Jewish homes. Uh, Jews could not be citizens of the Reich, etc., All kinds of fucking ridiculous laws. Racial hatred burned through Austria like a fire. Synagogues destroyed and burned. Uh, Jewish homes, businesses looted and ransacked. Jewish people beaten, killed in the streets by angry mobs. And police did nothing to stop it. Uh, Other than watching, laughing, sometimes joining in. Many of the folks leading the charge against the Jewish pestilence patted themselves on the back for being good people, strong people, doing what they needed to do for a strong Germany. Many of them went home. You know, they were good fathers, mothers, wives, husbands, people who smiled, hugged their friends, long as they weren't Jews, of course, people who tucked their children into beds lovingly at night, kissing their foreheads, praying to their God for their family to be safe, healthy, prosperous, and happy. And also, dear Lord, pl- please kill the dirty Jews. Amen. So hard for some to understand that a good, loving person and an evil, hateful fuck can inhabit the same body. Uh, thousands quickly fled this new Austrian terror. Also, should add a quick note about those 1935 Nuremberg Laws. In addition to making life harder for Jewish people, additional laws quickly followed identifying the Roma people as subhuman. Reich Interior Minister Wilhelm Frick decrees in January of 1936, alien races include all other races in Europe. These are, apart from the Jews, as a rule, only the gypsies. On the basis of this decree, a racist special law is enacted. Good reminder here that. Just because the angry mob doesn't come for your people initially doesn't mean they won't come for you next. Maybe it starts with transphobia then it moves to homophobia, then it moves to xenophobia, then to racism, Uh, then to more aggressive misogyny than we already have, then to uh, religious fascism, then to boycotting and or targeting believers of the wrong political ideology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hate likes to move and spread. The Vienna Central Office became a model for how to administer the quick expulsion of Jews and how the Reich Central Office for Jewish Immigration opened in Berlin on February 11th, 1939. It was created on the initiative of Hermann Göring, following a proposal by Heydrich. Goering, another strong, smart winner. This dude, his godfather, a man who saved his family from poverty, was Hermann Epstein. Wealthy Jewish doctor, No related to uh, Jeffrey that I know of. Uh, great guy who loved him. What a special kind of piece of shit Goering was to turn his back on the guy who'd saved his family growing up in such a grotesque way. Uh, Goering was a mentally unstable opiate addict who'd been locked up in an asylum for a while. In 1925, the guy was literally wearing a straitjacket. And then Hitler was like, I like this guy. It's good, pure Aryan stock. He makes strong Nazi. The world needs more like him. I don't know what, I don't know what accent that was. I didn't, I didn't plan on trying to do an accent until I already started talking like Hitler. Probably should have, probably should have uh, thought about that. Uh, the first director of the Reich Central Office for Jewish Immigration in Berlin was Colonel Heinrich Mueller. Uh, succeeded a few months later by a two-time dropout. Daddy, can you please give me a job? Eichmann. Uh, but this would change again with the Kreisdnacht, the Night of Broken Glass. On the night of November 9, nineteen thirty-eight, violent anti-Jewish demonstrations broke out across Germany, Austria, uh, Sudetenland, the region of uh, the region of Czechoslovakia, or the Czech Republic. Now, Nazi officials depicted the riots as justified reactions to the assassination of German foreign official Ernst vom Rath, uh, who had been shot two days earlier by Herschel Grynszpan, seventeen-year-old Polish Jew, distraught over the deportation of his family from Germany. Over 48 hours, violent mobs destroyed hundreds of synagogues, burning or desecrating Jewish religious artifacts along the way. Acting on orders from Gestapo headquarters, police officers and firefighters did nothing to prevent the destruction. All told, uh, approximately 7,500 Jewish-owned businesses, homes and schools, were plundered and 91 Jews were murdered in an orgy of hate and blood. An additional 30,000 Jewish men arrested, sent to a newly built concentration camps, or excuse me, sent to newly built concentration camps, plural. Uh, Though they claimed that Kristallnacht was spontaneous action by the German people. In fact, Nazis in the German army led the riots themselves. And even though they led the riots themselves, Nazis soon regretted how, uh, I think it's actually uh, Kristallnacht had gone down. The damage billions of dollars worth harmed the German economy. That upset them, not the violence. And the public, you know, uh, anarchist display of violence was at odds with how Nazi party leaders branded themselves as rational and highly efficient people. The way the violence occurred upset them. They just didn't like the optics. Uh, Hermann Göring, in particular, commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe, was furious. He summoned a meeting at the ministry to try and evaluate the economic and financial damage. During the meeting, he aligned himself with Reinhard Heydrich, and the 2 reevaluated their policy towards the Jews. Going forward, they preached a policy of order and discipline, not rioting. Efficiency, not economic destruction. The meeting made two decisions. One, to claim that the Jews themselves were to blame for the riot, not to pay a fine of a billion Reichmarks. Uh, Reichsmark's, uh equivalent to about $400 million in 1938 and two to achieve the full removal of Jews from Germany quickly insane uh, these guys were insane the fine part fucking kills me that's the equivalent of being raped then the police catch your rapist then they order you to pay the rapist more money than all the money you have for the trauma the rapist went through raping you Nazis party of the people uh, queue parades lots of cheering flag waving fuck yeah bro Oh, in France fell to the Nazis in the summer of 1941. Some Nazis would advocate expelling Jewish people to the French-controlled island of Madagascar off the coast of Southeast Africa now. They felt that Madagascar had the advantage of being an island uh, that would allow millions of Jews to be confined under tight Nazi control, right? They wouldn't be able to create that Jewish Vatican, go full fucking Illuminati and shit. But then the Madagascar plan, which was very carefully drawn up under the direction of Eichmann, turned out to be impractical because of a British, uh, British control of the sea in the area. So gosh dang, What a waste of valuable time for those champion brainiacs. At the same time, extreme violence was being unleashed by Nazis on Poland and Polish Jews. Nazi Germany occupied Poland starting September 1st, 1939. Uh, Even more than German Jews, Nazis considered Poland's Slavic Jews uh, racial others. Extra plaguey, extra subhuman. Nazis thought so little of of Slavic people in general, their racial hatred spreading further now. They also killed many non-Jewish Polish to establish firmer control of the new territory. They started uh, by going after their intellectuals, artists, members of the liberal professions, uh, senior civil servants and, uh, and officials, others. As part of Operation Tannenberg, uh, special units of police and SS officers murdered more than 60,000 people in September and October of 1939, Jews and non-Jews. Nazis wanted to eradicate, destroy Polish culture, right? Their hate spreading, it's evolving and strengthening. First, is I don't like these people. Then once they realize they can do whatever they fuck they want to these people, they think, well, who else do I want to get rid of? Who else do I want to torment? Let's spread it around. Uh, reminds me of the kill cycle of so many serial killers, right? The initial kills often uh, spread out, great care, taken to hide the evidence. Then as the killings go on, the bloodlust becomes more powerful. They become more emboldened. Uh, they eventually go, uh, you know, full fucking Ted Bundy at the uh, Chi Omega sorority house in Florida. The Nazis' idea was the new territory in Poland would take in German Jews. The first deportations of 1939 were experiments. How easy would it be to deport Jews, hold them in camps that they had to build and maintain themselves while awaiting deportation further east, wherever that was. Meanwhile, Germany kept expanding. After their victory in Poland and equally rapid victories in the West and the Balkans, more than 3 million extra Jews now in regions under German control. So now what? How to get rid of so many? Where to deport them? Nazis first looked further east, right? If the sea route to Madagascar was closed, if immigration was not an answer because no country wanted to receive the growing number of Jews of the Reich, which was a problem, Uh, the East seemed full of possibilities. Nazis thought they could use existing railway systems for mass deportations far to the East, preferably to the Arctic Circle, where Jews would then be left to their frozen fates. Jesus Christ. The problem was that there were already Jews in the East, and in the eyes of the Nazis, adding to their numbers represented a a danger to military security, right? They could form that fucking Jewish Vatican again. uh, Maybe around a bunch of igloos or something. All Soviets and German armies were supposed to support themselves using the resources they found in conquered lands didn't seem reasonable to increase the number of people who needed food. Nazis now felt they needed to decrease the number of Jews, uh, that only that would solve their problems. Enter the final solution to the Jewish question. In a letter dated July 1st, or July 31st, 1941, from Hermann Goering to Reinhard Heydrich, the SS given the responsibility of finding an overall solution to the Jewish question. As supplement to task which was entrusted to you in the decree dated 24 January 1939, namely to solve the Jewish question by immigration and evacuation, I herewith commission you to carry out all the preparations with regard to organization, the material side, and financial viewpoints for a final solution of the Jewish question in these territories of Europe which are under German influence. If the competency of other central organizations is touched in this connection, these organizations are to participate. I furthermore commission you to submit to me as soon as possible a draft showing the measures already taken for the execution of the intended final solution of the Jewish question. The plan that had started out as a forced immigration became forced evacuation, now roundup and extermination, and so it began. Uh, now two primary forms of mass murder would be enacted that would largely define the Holocaust: one associated with Western Europe, one in Eastern Europe. While extermination camps were being built in Poland to deal with Polish Jews massacres largely rounding up people shooting them and then dumping them into mass graves was being carried out in the east in both cases masses of people were transported by train or truck to temporary structures or at least some kind of predetermined area to be killed immediately generally either by firing squad or gassing right whatever the means bullets or gas whatever the site mobile gas chamber permanent structure gas chamber uh, a fucking ditch etc the aim was always identical The death of an entire population, organized and methodically carried out with as little resources and time wasted as possible. That is what makes genocide, when it happens, uh, especially when it happens like this, such a huge fucking deal. The fact that an entire country's economy, manufacturing sectors, government, absolutely everything can be mobilized with the very worst of intentions. And then it can be done by a political party chosen by the people, people who maybe didn't know all the details. But they did know goddamn well what the overall goal was, labeling fellow meat sacks as fucking subhuman and removing them from society. Now with an overview of the buildup complete, let's take a deep dive into the horrors of the Holocaust, backing up to 1933, covering some events we've already touched on in more depth in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time This year my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible So I canceled a tour sacrificed that income and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more resting more relaxing more and enjoying time with family friends and just myself And i'm so glad I did I feel better than I have in a long time And my better help therapist debbie was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you debbie After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just $15 a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge rocket money found it though and it was canceled rocket money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings rocket money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20 percent. all you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and rocket money takes care of the rest they'll deal with customer service for you Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread, on top of the sugar from the jelly, made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of Net Carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of Net Carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to the sponsors who support this show, everybody. Uh, Back now to today's Holocaust timeline. Strap on those boots,
2: soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK Timeline.
1: January 30th, 1933, German President Paul von Hindenburg appoints Adolf Hitler as Chancellor of Germany. Spurred by the German people's frustration with the economy and their humiliation from World War I, the Nazi Party had won 230 governmental seats in the July, in July of 1932. Paul von Hindenburg had initially been opposed to Hitler as chancellor, but as a result of a series of complicated negotiations and populist pressure, Hindenburg was convinced to appoint Hitler as chancellor with the understanding that a non-Nazi vice chancellor uh, and other non-Nazis in key governmental positions would contain and temper Hitler's more brutal tendencies, which they were well aware of. But he would be wrong. They would all be wrong. No one would contain Hitler. At this time, Germany had an estimated Jewish population of 566,000. Within a month of taking power, Hitler begins radical reforms, Using emergency constitutional powers, Hitler's cabinet issues a decree for the protection of the German people on February 4th, 1933. This decree places legal constraints on the press, authorizes the police to ban political meetings and marches, effectively hindering electoral campaigning. Uh, Freedom of the press and freedom to assemble and protest. Beware of any and all leaders who attempt to restrict these rights in any form. Always a dangerous, poisonous political move. Always a terrible precedent to set. Uh, Putin recently started making more of these kind of moves. Any leader afraid of a free press, not a leader, a rational person should ever want in charge of their nation. Uh, and on uh, February 22nd, 40,000 German men are sworn in as auxiliary police force loyal to the Nazi party. First, the nation of Germany. Second, not terrifying at all. Hitler begins ordering a rapid expansion of the state police, a.k.a. the Gestapo, putting Hermann Goering in charge of a new security force composed entirely of Nazis and dedicated to stamping out opposition to their party. Again, not terrifying at all. Uh, Hitler, of course, doesn't stop there. February 27th, 1933. The building housing the German parliament, aka the Reichstag, burns down from an act of arson. Immediately, the Nazi leadership and his German nationalist coalition partners exploit the fire to persuade President Paul von Hindenburg that communists, the next biggest political party in in Germany next to the Nazis, were planning a violent uprising to derail Germany's national renewal. While the origins of fire, still unclear, Many think the Nazis burned it down themselves to secure political power because just a day later, February 28th, the emergency powers are granted to Hitler as a result of the Reichstag fire. How convenient. Commonly known as the Reichstag fire decree, the resulting act for the protection of the people and state abolished a number of constitutional protections like suspending the right to assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, other constitutional protections, including all restraints on police investigations. Fucking terrifying. Also permitted the regime to arrest and incarcerate political opponents without specific charges, dissolve political organizations and to suppress publications, gave the central government the authority to overrule state and local laws and overthrow state and local governments. This, of course, paved the way for a Nazi dictatorship, all under the guise of protecting the German people from some internal threats. Right. Uh, Protecting the German people, except the Jews, of course, you know, or the Roma people or Slavics, you know, or communists or black Germans, or Polish Germans, or homosexual Germans, or any Germans who didn't get a hard dick or a wet pussy from saluting images of Hitler or the Nazi flag. A cult of personality growing stronger around Hitler. He wasn't merely liked by some Germans. He was worshipped as some kind of savior, leading the German people, straight, Aryan, Nazi-loving German people, out of the ashes of World War I embarrassment. Beware those who worship politicians, right? People who cannot tolerate any dissent or any criticism of their precious demagogue. A national sentiment was building that to be uh, opposed to Hitler was to be opposed to a strong Germany. Within weeks of that motherfucker uh, locking down Germany under martial law, under a martial law type of control, the first concentration camp opens. March 22nd, 1933, the first prisoners arrive at Dachau. Concentration camp originally intended for Hitler's political opponents. This prison for people who hadn't done anything wrong other than disagree with Hitler, uh, located on the grounds of an abandoned munitions factory. Near the northeastern part of, a t- of the town of Daku, Dachau, about 10 miles northwest of Munich in southern Germany. After days of travel with little or no food or water, the first prisoners arrived weak and exhausted, often near death. Typhus epidemics became a serious problem due to overcrowding, poor sanitary conditions, insufficient provisions, and the weakened state of the prisoners who, uh, you know, whose rights were not really respected, whose lives were not valued. Many died. The camp would eventually be divided into two sections, camp area and crematoria area camp area consisted of 32 barracks including one for clergy in prison for opposing the nazi regime right illegal to preach a sermon critical of the nazis in any fucking way and uh, one reserved for horrific medical experiments eventually at this camp and at others experiments would be conducted on food contamination blood coagulation the effects of various poisons and gases starvation bone muscle nerve transplantation Uh, head injuries, the effects of bacteria being injected directly into bone marrow, being frozen, being subjected to high altitude simulation, uh, being given all manner of diseases, being given nothing but seawater to drink, being operated on with no painkillers, being sterilized, exposed to radiation, having explosive devices tested on human guinea pigs, electroshock experiments being raped in order to be given venereal diseases, men, women, children, butchered, poisoned, tortured, you name it. There were no ethical boundaries boundaries that couldn't be crossed camp administration was located in the gatehouse the main entrance camp area had a group of support buildings containing the kitchen laundry showers workshops as well as a uh, prison block courtyard between the prisons and the central kitchen used for summary execution of prisoners an electrified barbed wire fence a ditch and a wall with seven guard towers surrounded the camp dachau prisoners those not immediately killed used uh, as forced laborers at first they were employed in the operation of the camp and various construction projects And in small handicraft industries established in the camp, prisoners built roads, worked in gravel pits, drained marshes, help strengthen Nazi Germany before the state fucking kills you. Uh, Heinrich Himmler, as police president of Munich, officially described the camp when it opened as the first concentration camp for political prisoners. Motherfuckers would go there to concentrate. Keep concentrating until you realize Hitler's fucking right about everything. During the first year, the camp has a capacity of 5,000 prisoners. Initially, the internees, primarily German communists, social democrats, trade unionists, other political opponents, the Nazi regime. Soon, other groups interned at Dachau, like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Roma people, homosexuals, as well as uh, the vague anti-socials and repeat criminal offenders. Uh, During the early years, relatively few Jews actually were interned at Dachau. March 24th, 1933, the German parliament passes the Enabling Act. Let's give Hitler fucking more power. He hasn't even been, been in power for two months yet. The act's full name is the law to remedy the distress of the people and the Reich, right? They always present it. We're doing this for you. I'm being a dictator to fucking help you. It's always the same shit. Uh, the act allowed him to enact laws, including ones that violated the Weimar Constitution without approval of either Parliament or Reich President von Hindenburg. Hindenburg now officially just a figurehead. This act officially strips him of any, any real power. Well, he had one last uh, power, the power to depose Hitler. Uh, that probably come at a great cost. Uh, since the passage of this law depended on a two-thirds majority vote in parliament, Hitler and the Nazi party used intimidation and persecution to get the needed votes. Do you want to help Germany get strong again? Or do you need to go to Dachau and concentrate? Nazis literally prevented all 81 communists and 26 of the 120 social democrats from taking their seats for this vote, right? Detaining them in their houses, businesses, other areas outside of parliament. In addition, they stationed secret police in the chamber to intimidate remaining representatives and guarantee they voted the right way. In the end, the law passed with more than the required two-thirds majority. Yeah, of course it did in that atmosphere. Uh, Only a few Social Democrats still voted against it, and I'm guessing their political futures ended with those votes. And later, if they didn't escape Germany pretty quick, probably their lives as well. Uh, Germany's Supreme Court now did nothing to challenge this act's legitimacy, I mean, those justices knew that voting it down would not stop it. It would just lead them to being officially stripped of all their power, which had really already been stripped just with the new laws the uh, Nazis were passing. You know, if they opposed Hitler, they would be punished severely. So they accepted the majority vote, overlooked the absence of the communist delegates and the social democrats who were under a weird kind of uh, arrest for the day. Uh, Then on April 1st, 1933, Hitler says April Fool's. He steps down from power and disassembles the Nazi party. He releases everyone held in Dachau and rescinds all the horrific laws passed by the Nazis. Everything in Germany is great again. Uh, All are treated equal. Hitler heads to the countryside, focuses on watercolor paintings of peaceful German lakes and streams, uh, shaves a stupid fucking mustache, grows out a big old beard that his grandkids will later love to tug on. Of course, J.K. No, April 1st, 1933, uh, first government-sanctioned boycott of Jewish shops and businesses takes place. Less than three months after coming into power, the Nazis uh, stage an economic boycott targeting Jewish-owned businesses and offices of Jewish professionals. To justify this, Nazis claim that German and foreign Jews are spreading atrocity stories simply just to randomly damage Germany's reputation. Well, it's it's not uh, stories. It's facts. Words already getting out about all the horrible shit the Nazis are doing. And so Hitler has to tell his people it's lies, lies, lies. Reminds me of what Putin's doing right now in Russia. Nazi officials stood menacingly in front of the Jewish-owned department stores and retail establishments, outside offices of Jewish f- professionals, holding signs, shouting slogans such as, don't buy from Jews, Jews are our misfortune. Imagine that today. Imagine, uh, imagine some fuck bunch of dickheads holding signs out in front of your shop, screaming at customers to not shop at your business because of your race. Um, imagine it's uh, police and politicians doing that, right? Elected officials, not just fucking stray lunatics. Although the national boycott campaign that lasted just a day and was ignored by many individual Germans who continued to shop in Jewish-owned stores and seek the services of Jewish professionals, you know, the boycott marked the beginning of a nationwide campaign by the Nazi party publicly against German Jews. Soon, laws will be passed to prevent Jews from doing pretty much fucking everything. On April 7th, the laws for reestablishment of the civil service barred Jews from holding civil service, university, and state positions. April 26th, German secret police, the Gestapo, the SS is established. Hitler hasn't been in power for three months yet. The Nazi regime wanted to establish a centralized political police force that would answer directly to Nazi leadership. To create this, they had to reform the existing decentralized police system, which in the 1930s was tied to local governments. The Gestapo, staffed by plainclothes policemen, often called Gestapo agents. Most of these men professionally trained. They often had worked as detectives or political policemen during the Weimar Republic. One Gestapo agent, Heinrich Mueller, had worked for the police in Munich since 1919. Went on to become the head of the Gestapo in 1939. Professionally trained policemen like Mueller brought experience, knowledge, and skill to the Gestapo. But not all Gestapo agents were longtime policemen. Some came to the Gestapo through the Nazi Intelligence Service, the SD. These SD men were Nazi devotees with little or no police training. They were hired as part of SS leader Heinrich Himmler's plan to transform Germany's existing police system into uh, a Nazi party driven institution. The Gestapo's mission was to investigate and combat all attempts to threaten the state. Right. Read that as Heil Hitler or get fucked. And the Nazi view threats to the state encompassed a wide variety of behaviors. These behaviors included everything from organized political opposition to even individual critical remarks about the Nazis, real or rumored. To combat this wide array of potential threats, the Nazi dictatorship gave the Gestapo enormous power. If a Gestapo agent found out that you had told a a fucking joke about Hitler, which a coming December 1934 law would make literally illegal, just specifically, excuse me, specifically you could not joke about Hitler. That's fucking scary, right? When your leader is like, it's illegal to joke about me. That's not someone anyone should like. Uh, you could be accused of performing a malicious a- attack against the state or the party, if you're accused of this. You could, you could legally be arrested by the Gestapo, have a trial before their special little kangaroo court who found guilty, whoever they fucking felt like it, uh, and be sent to a concentration camp for as long as they felt like uh, keeping you there. Or, you know, they could just kill you. All because you say, I don't know, talked about how Hitler had a micropenis. Only one ball, and for sexual pleasure, liked to have women kick and shit on him. Or if you talked about how he wanted to fuck his niece, who literally killed herself to escape his uh, romantic advances. Uh, That's not all just random slander either. That is based on either released CIA intelligence reports or the work of several noted historians. Seriously, what a leader, a failed art student with a teeny tiny dick, one ball, a desire to be shit on, who is sexually obsessed with his fucking niece. Good, strong, Aryan, stock, oh, Heil Hitler. Oh, boy. Gestapo would uh, send many to concentration camps. The Gestapo had the power of protective custody that allowed them to bypass the court system. Those placed in protective custody could not consult a lawyer, appeal their sentence, or defend themselves in court. Because they, you know, didn't fucking matter what they thought or what was true. Gestapo even used protective custody to override court decisions in uh, in some cases. Typically, they did so when they considered the court sentence too lenient. So if someone goes through the court system, they don't like how the verdict is. They're just like, ah, fucking throw them in concentration camp. Fuck them. Uh, as an institution, the Gestapo was not subject to any legal or administrative oversight. You know, no other institution, not even the courts, could overrule any Gestapo decision. The Nazi Gestapo could do whatever the fuck they wanted to whoever the fuck they wanted. And as long as Hitler was happy, it was all well and good. And millions of proud nationalistic German patriots loved him. Go, Germany, go, whatever it takes. I mean, so long as they're doing this shit to everyone else, but not me, right? (laughs) It'll never come back around on me. That's not how it ever works, is it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. get them. Fucking get them. Uh, May 10th, 1933. University students burn over 25,000 un-German books in Berlin's opera square now. Book burnings. Fuck yeah. That's when you know your culture is heading in the right direction. When you're burning books, when your people are so afraid of words that express ideas and opinions contrary to their own that they feel like they have to literally burn them. Uh, Students threw books, pillaged uh, mostly from public and university libraries onto bonfires with great ceremony, band playing, right? at the fucking music, they're dancing and smiling. They're doing so-called fire oaths. Oh boy. These students, young, indoctrinated Nazis, sought to purify German literature of foreign immoral influences, especially Jewish immoral influences, right? If a Jewish person wrote it, it's just fucking gross. Uh, Among the authors whose works had to be burned, Helen Keller. Mm-hmm. The writer and advocate for disabled persons, uh, pacifism, improved conditions for industrial workers, and women's voting rights. Gross! <laughs> uh, fuck human rights. Fuck the disabled. Am I right? Woo! Oh, let's burn it all down and build something much worse in its place. Uh, that day, some 40,000 dipshits also gathered to hear Joseph Goebbels, Joseph, Joseph Goebbels, uh, Hitler's right hand propagandist, deliver a fiery address. Uh, the Reich Minister of Propaganda. The man responsible for controlling the content of the press, literature, visual arts, film, theater, music, radio, Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1945. And they actually did have a ministry of propaganda. Not even hiding it. The Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. Uh, As if enlightenment and propaganda, same fucking thing. Important to note, I guess, fair to note, though, that at the time the German word propaganda, uh, value neutral. In today's terms, uh, the ministry could be understood to have a name that meant roughly uh, Ministry for Culture, Media, and Public Relations. But still, uh, Goebbels, another failure, who found power in the Nazis. He wanted to be a playwright, but uh, no one would produce his plays because he was a fucking shit writer. So he took a desk job he hated as a bank clerk, insignificant job, he made him mad. And, uh, you know, and he started, like many people, leading up to Hitler's ascension to power to blame his failures, not on himself, but on the Jews. The Nazi upper hierarchy. Just a big group of fucking losers who just consistently took the easy road when it came to personal failure. Blame anyone but yourself. I've never liked that person, right? They always got excuses. Oh, it's never my fault. Oh, man, if fucking this person would have done their shit, I, things would be great for me right now. Yeah, but my, these fucking people let me down. When it's consistently that, it's like, oh, what's the common denominator? Oh, you. Oh, you're the common denominator. Uh, August 1933, Dachau's commandant, Theodore Eich, Introduced a system of regulations that infli- uh, inflicted brutal punishments on prisoners for the slightest offenses. When Eich became inspector of the newly established German concentration camp system, he ensured that the Dachau camp uh, would serve as a model for all later concentration camps. Qu- quickly became a training center for SS guards who would later be deployed throughout what will be a massive concentration camp system. Now moving ahead a year, August 1934. August 2nd, 1934, Hitler proclaims himself Führer and Reichskanzler a.k.a. Leader and Reich Chancellor, after the death of President Paul von Hindenburg, who passed away at the age of 86 from lung cancer. With the president now dead, Hitler was freed to consolidate the chancellorship and presidency into a new office of the Führer. Uh, The German army now took an oath of allegiance to its new commander-in-chief. But really, you know, the army was already Hitler's. So this is just a a fucking dog and pony show. Prior to Hitler, the chancellor had been a, a fairly weak position, actually. The head of parliament, but a position that relied on the office of the president to actually accomplish anything. Hitler changed that shit, though, almost immediately upon taking office. He made Hindenburg, who hated social democrats and communists, so afraid that those groups were going to uh, cause an insurrection, were going to rise up and destroy the Germany he so loved. He was a war hero from World War I that he allowed Hitler and his Nazi nationalists to take new powers to save Germany. Uh, Hindenburg never actually liked Hitler, but seemed to think he was a necessary evil. Had he lived a bit longer, perhaps he might have sacked Hitler— declared martial law, turned the government over to the military, something he did consider in his final days, but unfortunately didn't do it. Uh, As aggressive and radical as Hitler's policies were when he first took office, they became much more aggressive after Hindenburg dies. Now Hitler has no one above him who can technically fire him. Now only an insurrection or assassination can dethrone him. Or, you know, he kills himself, but uh, that's not not gonna happen for a while. Uh, Let's skip ahead a couple months now. May 31st, 1935, Jews barred from serving in the German armed forces ridiculous uh september 15th 1935 marks the passage of the nuremberg laws i mentioned earlier before the timeline the nuremberg laws uh, really two laws the reich citizenship law and the law for the protection of german blood and german honor <laughs> all these flower they always pass the shittiest laws with the the nicest you know seemingly like valiant titles what is it? What is the name of that law that's going to just fuck over all of our rights as citizens? It's the Reich Citizenship Law
2: and Protection for German Blood and German Honor. Are you against honor? <laughs>
1: uh, the Citizenship Law defended a, uh, defined, excuse me, a citizen as a person who is of German or related blood. This meant the Jews, who had legally been defined as being a separate race, right, barely human, they could not be full citizens of Germany. Therefore, they had no political rights. The law for the protection of German blood and German honor was a law against what the Nazis viewed as race mixing or race defilement, as they would call it. It banned future intermarriages and sexual relations between Jews and people of German or related blood. Because the Nazis thought these children would undermine the purity of the German race. Two months later, November 15, 1935, Germany further defines a Jew in their legal codes. They categorize a Jew as a person with at least three Jewish grandparents. A grandparent was considered Jewish if they belonged to the Jewish religious community. Thus, the Nazis now define Jews by their religion, not just by supposed racial traits that Nazism attributed to them previously. None of this makes any sense. Again, you don't have to be smart to be powerful. We have some politicians in the office, uh, in offices right now that I wouldn't uh, hire to be a fucking intern for anything. Uh, they're, at least in my opinion, blatantly very stupid, uh, but they've got confidence and they've got conviction and they're good at yelling in speeches. They have no fear or shame when it comes to expressing their poorly thought out uh, and or utterly nonsensical Beliefs and convictions, confidence, conviction, charisma, the ability to deliver a passionate speech, throw out some cool catchphrases, uh, so much more important to political success than skill in diplomacy, problem-solving, basic raw intelligence, intellectualism, statesmanship, you get it, fun. New Nazi race laws also categorized some people in Germany as mixed-race persons. According to the law now, these people were neither German nor Jewish. They were people who had just one or two Jewish grandparents, and they also were fucking gross. And had, uh, you know, no rights as citizens. To prove that one was not Jewish, people were required to use baptism records, religious records, gravestones to indicate their grandparents' religious identities. It was, uh, you know, guilty until proven innocent. Once you were uh, labeled Jewish, you had to come up with a lot of paperwork to prove that you weren't. Uh, While initially focused on Jews, the Nazi government soon clarified that these Nuremberg laws also applied to Roma people and black people and their descendants. Uh, They could not be full citizens of Germany either. Nor could they marry or have sexual relations with people of German or related blood. More laws soon follow. March 3rd, 1936, Jewish doctors barred from practicing medicine in Germany. Imagine that. Imagine your nation hates you so fucking much, they won't even allow you to heal their sick. Again, how stupid is that? To have non-Jewish citizens now dying because Jewish doctors not allowed to legally save them. March 7th, Germans march into the Rhineland. The Rhineland was a big point of contention for post-war, uh, post-World War I Germany. For many years, the Rhineland area had been a key industrial region of Germany, uh, producing coal, steel, and iron resources. The Rhineland also formed a natural barrier to Germany's neighbor and rival France. In the event of a war, the River Rhine, if properly defended, would be a difficult obstacle for an invading force to cross. Uh, one of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, was that the Germans would not be able to keep military forces in a 50-kilometer-long stretch of the Rhineland. Hitler didn't like this. He thought it made Germany vulnerable to invasion. Reminds me of Putin assembling forces around the border of Ukraine. Uh, he was determined to strengthen Germany's borders. So on March 7th, 1936, Hitler boldly marched 22,000 German troops into the Rhineland, directly opposing the Treaty of Versailles. All right, He's defending Germany from fucking no one who wants to attack them at this point. Uh, Hitler offered France and Britain a 25-year non-aggression pact, though. Claimed Germany had no territorial demands to make in Europe. Just wants to get a lot of troops around the border, just sussing things out. I'm not doing anything naughty. No, I'm not doing anything naughty. Get out of here. Uh, Of course, he's not telling the truth. June 17th, 1936. Himmler is named chief of German police. Heinrich Himmler. We've heard of this dumb fuck before. Uh, Let's explore who he is again. He'd be incredibly important to the killing machine that Nazi Germany would become. If Hitler was the face and voice of the Nazi party, uh, Hitler was the taint. Uh, No, he was the hands and brains, is what people would say. Uh, From behind the scenes, he presided over a vast bureaucratic empire that made him the second most powerful man in Nazi Germany. He would also be the key and senior Nazi official responsible for conceiving, overseeing implementation of the final solution, the Nazi plan to murder the Jews of Europe. Himmler, longtime ardent Nazi. By the time Hitler had received his university degree in agriculture in August of 1922, he was a fanatical nationalist and a political activist. Forced to take a job in a manure processing factory near Munich. Ah, yeah. Himmler made contact with the National Socialist through the SA chief of staff, Ernst Romm. In August of 1923, he joined the Nazi party to which he devoted his career after he quit his job a month later, walked away from a lucrative uh, job working with shit. Uh, Himmler found work as a secretary, personal assistant to Gregor Strasser, whom Hitler appointed Reich propaganda leader of the Nazi party in 1926. He also made speeches which stressed race consciousness, uh, the cult of the German race, the need for German expansion and settlements, and the struggle against so-called enemies of the German state, including socialists, communists, Jewish capital, and the Slavic peoples. Himmler also introduced two key functions to the SS that related to the Nazi party's uh, Nazi parties, long term core goals for Germany, internal security and guardianship over racial purity. Uh, December 31st, 1931, Himmler also established a race and settlement office of the SS to evaluate applications of SS men seeking to marry under a new internal marriage decree. By late 1934, Himmler sought and obtained command of each of the state political police departments in Germany, had centralized them within a single new agency in Berlin, the secret state police. Between 1933 and 34, Himmler also secured SS control over the centralized concentration camp system. Although various civilian authorities and police agencies had established autonomous concentration camps during 1933 to incarcerate various political enemies of the Nazi government, Hitler, who was impressed with the Dachau concentration camp, authorized Himmler to create an entire centralized concentration camp system. The system would grow in wartime to include 30 to 40 main camps and hundreds and hundreds of subcamps. And Himmler, as we've learned in previous sucks, was another brilliant mind. He had a Rasputin-like personal occultist, Karl uh, Maria Villegut, whom he consulted regarding insane shit uh, like looking for passages, openings to a hollow earth, where there was a magical land of telepathic giants and fairies called Thule, uh, a place Himmler believed was the origin of the Aryans and a very real place. Have, have you met my wonderful pet psychic, Karl? He
2: has such a wonderful mind. He's looking for the giants that will take us to so much glory. And to the fairies, you'll find them. Beautiful white fairies who will help us kill the Jews. The Fuhrer will be so happy. Once we find the school opening in Iceland or maybe Belgium somewhere with, with the fairies, that's hard to say. Oh, so lucky to have such a collection of wonderful minds running a wonderful Nazi party.
1: Uh, let's talk about Himmler's camps now. July 1936, the Sockenhausen concentration camp opens. Sockenhausen, this camp uh, built in the summer of 1936. It was Himmler's first new concentration camp as chief of German police. Sockenhausen Conceived as an ideal concentration camp that gave architectural expression of the world, uh, excuse me, that gave architectural expression to the worldview of the SS and intended to subject the internees to the absolute power of the SS, both symbolically and in reality. More than 200,000 people would be interned at Sachsenhausen between 1936 and 1945, long running camp. They included political opponents of the Nazi regime, members of groups declared by the Nazis to be racially or biologically inferior, such as Jews. Sinti and Roma, uh, both Romani people, historically referred to as gypsies, uh, homosexuals, as well as so-called career criminals, and the vague antisocials also put in these camps. Uh, Even if you were pure-blooded German and straight, even a member of the Nazi party, you could still be sent to one of these camps if the state deemed you to be just an antisocial problem for whatever reason. Almost everyone now got to live in at least a little bit of fear. When you start imprisoning and killing people for nonsensical reasons, eventually, pretty much everyone's fair game. Short-sighted motherfuckers uh, quick to grab pitchforks, real or symbolic, and form an angry mob, they always seem to be the first to forget that. Uh, initially, the internees, predominantly German citizens, but after the outbreak of World War II, tens of thousands of people were deported from occupied territories to Sackenhausen, uh, including political opponents and allied prisoners of war. 1944, around 90% of the internees would be foreigners, with citizens of the Soviet Union and Poland forming the largest groups. There were also around 20,000 women amongst the internees at Sackenhausen, Initially, internees forced to work in workshops and factories owned by the SS in the camp's industrial yard, as well as in various punishment details, such as the brickworks or the shoe running detail. The shoe running detail is so random and absurd and horrible. Uh, set up in 1940 under the command of civilian officials from the Reich Ministry of Economics, consisted of a shoe testing path with various different surfaces laid out around the parade ground. And internees would just march on this uh, for days on end with full packs just to test the suitability of various shoe sole materials. Some people would be literally marched to death to test out various uh, different shoe sole materials. And in the late summer of 1938, prisoners forced to build the world's largest brickworks here to supply building materials for the gigantic structures planned by the Nazi leadership in the Reich capital city of Berlin. Each day, the SS marched up to 2,000 internees over a canal bridge to the Klinkerwerk uh, brickworks before the eyes of the local populace. This detail, particularly feared by internees as a death camp, especially as the SS used the Klinkerwerk for carrying out deliberate murder operations. Tens of thousands of internees would die at Sockenhausen as a result of hunger, disease, forced labor, uh, medical experiments, and mistreatment. Or by just, you know, straight up uh, execution by the SS, just get shot. Autumn of 1941, the SS executed at least 13,000 Soviet prisoners of war, among whom many were Jews, and a purpose-built neck shot unit. Just use these motherfuckers uh, for target practice and the testing of gassing uh, vehicles, right? Doing some hardcore product testing for their weapons of war. Let's see how this gas works. Let's see how that gas works. Uh, About six months later in the spring of 1942, an extermination unit built in the industrial yard with a crematorium and a neck shot unit and a gas chamber added in 1943. Uh, Analogously to Tower A, which was the entrance gate, the SS cynically named this building Station Z. A through Z, everything Z, you're done. Uh, Back it up now to 1936. October 25th, Hitler, fellow racist Mussolini, fellow fascist uh, over in Italy, formed the Rome-Berlin Axis. This alliance contained a protocol committing Germany and Italy to follow a common foreign policy. Now Germany and her partners in military aggression will be known as the Axis Powers. July 15th, 1937, Buchenwald. The Buchenwald concentration camp opens. Together with its many satellite subcamps, Buchenwald was uh, one of the largest concentration camps established within German borders 19- of 1937. Constructed about five miles northwest of the city of Weimar in east-central Germany, located in a wooded area on the northern slopes of the Ethersberg. Prisoners lived in the Buchenwald main camp. This area is surrounded by an electrified barbed wire fence, watchtowers, chain of sentries outfitted with automatic machine guns. Inside the main camp, a notorious punishment block known as the Bunker, Uh, It was located at the entrance of the main camp. This is where prisoners who violated camp regulations were punished and often tortured to death. In addition to the punishment block, the main camp included 33 wooden barracks, 15 two-story stone buildings, prisoners, infirmary, kitchen, laundry, canteen, warehouses, workshops, and disinfection buildings. Also eventually had a railway station, brothel, and crematorium. Yes, a brothel. Eventually, at least 10 different concentration camps would feature brothels. This is some straight-up Handmaid's Tale Jezebel shit. Women forced to reward the men of Gilead under Hitler's eye. Women forced to be sex slaves could not be Jewish. The vast majority were women in prison for being antisocial, right? A crime very arbitrarily defined under Hitler to include prostitutes. Uh, Also just women suspected of having political ties or being homosexual or having relationships with Jews. Uh, They were made sure to be uh, free of venereal disease, checked regularly. They were either sterilized or given regular abortions whenever they got pregnant And then they were offered uh, as rewards to camp workers, non-Jewish workers, of course. They were incentive to work harder. They were offered to German guards as rewards for good behavior. One forced camp sex worker uh, named Frau B. in a German article said she would uh, service up to five men an hour. Just another in a long line of horrific abuse orchestrated by Nazi Germany. So uh, SS guard barracks in the camp administration compound located in the southern part of Buchenwald. Buchenwald Main Camp administered at least 88 different subcamps, subcamps located across Germany from Dusseldorf in the west to uh, Germany's eastern border. All these camp systems had satellites working to provide raw material or refined material, uh, whatever, to produce weapons of war, supplies for the German populace, etc. Some subcamps state owned, others private enterprises. I think I forgot about that. I found that super interesting. Uh, I had previously thought, at least recently, that it was all state owned stuff. Uh, For example, in February of 1942, the Gustloff Firm established a subcamp of Buchenwald to support its armaments works. In March 1943, the company owned a large munitions plant adjacent to the camp. This private company, an especially evil one, a corporation funded by properties, businesses, and wealth confiscated from Jews. Named after Wilhelm Gustloff, a Nazi so dedicated, he probably beat off the pictures of Hitler. Probably shaved his ball hair to give himself a little Hitler stash right under his uh, tiny Nazi dick. Saluted his own sack in the mirror. Heil, tiny Hitler. Uh, He was the founder of a Nazi party organization serving Germans living outside the Reich. He lived in Switzerland, spent a lot of his time, energy, and money spreading anti-Semitic propaganda. He was once sued by a group of Swiss Jews for publishing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Talked about that book and several sucks. That fictional but presented as fact book that basically launched all the conspiracies uh, centered around the Jews have all the money, uh, a small group of Jews, the, the Illuminati run a fucking shadow government that controls the world, that shit. Luckily, this piece of human-shaped fucking garbage is turd, gunned down by a Jewish man in Switzerland in 1936 at the age of 41. And that guy, David Frankfurter, 27-year-old Jewish student at the time, put in a Swiss jail uh, where he would remain jailed throughout world war ii then as soon as the war was over he was pardoned and released so hail nimrod and hail david frankfurter then he moved to tel aviv israel worked for the ministry of defense became an officer in the army had a great life until he died in 1982 at the age of 73 back to buchenwald uh, some hor- horrifying experiments would happen there uh, Beginning in 1941 these experiments took place in several barracks in the northern part of the main camp Medical experiments aimed at testing the efficacy of vaccines and treatments against contagious diseases such as typhus, typhoid, cholera, uh, ch- cholera uh, diphtheria uh, They resulted in hundreds of painful deaths. 1944, Danish physician Dr. Carl uh, Varnett began a series of experiments that he claimed would cure inmates uh, who had been in prison for homosexuality this fucking Dr. Frankenstein psychopath, uh, prisoners who had already served prison sentences for violating the German statute that criminalized sexual relations between men were sent to his concentration camp instead of being released. And he surgically would insert some type of artificial male sex gland into them. None of the sources specify exactly what this artificial male sex gland was, but inserting it caused horrible infections that killed at least two prisoners. So yeah, just some Frankenstein quack science shit. Uh, Guess what that insertion never did? cure homosexuality because it's not a disease and uh you know anyone trying to cure something that is not actually a disease or wrong is a fucking idiot uh this idiot fled to argentina after world war ii continued trying to come up with ways to medically cure homosexuality until he died in 1965 at the age of 72 he was a huge piece of shit when he worked at buchenwald and he remained a huge piece of shit for the rest of his life uh back to our main timeline march of 1938 march 11th marked the beginning of what would become known in Austria as the Anschluss, the German invasion of Austria and subsequent flight of Austrian Jews. We touched on it before the timeline, I believe, I think. Uh, a lot of information. Now I'm like, did I? Or this is just because I've read this, uh, you know, three or four different times and <laughs> added notes to it for the past few days. Before World War I and World War II, Austria was a country of approximately 6.5 million people. Most of these Austrians consider themselves ethnically German. Many of them also Jewish. Before 1938, in Vienna alone, besides 22 synagogues, over 50 prayer houses, there was a Jewish museum, Jewish libraries, schools, hospitals, medical clinics, orphanages, sports clubs, Yiddish theaters, kosher kitchens, Zionist organizations, political associations, newspapers and journals and many other charitable foundations and so much more. Vienna had a thriving Jewish community full of talented artists, educators, doctors, businessmen and more. Altogether, there were an estimated 440 synagogues, prayer houses, organization, clubs, and associations right, throughout Austria. One of the largest groups, the Jewish World War I Veterans Association. As a minority, Jews made up uh, uh, 3% of the Austrian population, but 10% of the Viennese population. But as in Germany, trouble was on the horizon. And like in Germany, that trouble is related to economic conditions after World War I. In the 1920s, many Austrians did not think their country could survive economically Without additional land held by Austria-Hungary, which had been disbanded, taken from them by the Treaty of Versailles, some Austrians hoped to solve this problem of not having enough land power uh, by uniting with Germany. The Austrian Nazi Party, yes, they had Nazis too, failed to win any seats in the November 1930 general election, but its popularity grew in Austria after Hitler came to power in Germany. The idea of the country joining Germany grew in popularity. Thanks in part to Nazi propaganda, uh, which used slogans such as one people, one empire, one leader, heavily distributed in Austria, right? Used to try to convince Austrians to advocate for an Anschluss of the German Reich. But this was impossible because the Treaty of Versailles, or Versailles expressly oh, forbid it. We forbid it. But once again, going against the Treaty of Versailles, Hitler invades Austria on the basis that Austria is ethnically German. And really, he's just uh, uniting German people. This had long been Hitler's goal. Hitler opened his autobiography and political treatise, Mein Kampf, with a vision for a future relationship between Austria and Germany, writing, the reunification of Germany and Austria is a life task to be carried out by all means. German Austria must be restored to the great German motherland. People have the same blood, should be the same like. The Anschluss took place over three days in March 1938. March 11th, Hitler gave the Austrian government a series of ultimatums, threatened to invade. His demand was basically Please agree to become part of Germany, or we're just going to fucking force you to become part of Germany. And while the majority of Austrian people did want to join up with Hitler's Germany at this point in history, the government of Austria did not want that. They recognized the psychopath he was. Uh, shortly thereafter, Hitler's demands at 747 p.m., Austrian Chancellor Kurt von Schuschnik, he had no other choice, gave a radio address that was broadcast throughout Austria. He announced his resignation in the face of German pressure. He instructed Austrians and Austrian military to not resist German troops if they invaded, which he knew they would. Within minutes of his resignation, Swastika armbands, flags appeared all over Austrian Austrian streets. Austrian Nazis now had license to attack their political opponents uh, and or Jews without fear of any repercussions. They seized power quickly in government buildings, dominated the streets with torchlight parades, chants, this is some fucking angry mob, pitchfork shit, uh, salutes to Hitler, took over Austria without Germany ever needing to fire a shot. The Fuhrer, born in Austria, so fucking pleased. Uh, oh, my God. I think his little his little baby dick, I, I imagine it probably even got kind of hard, as hard as a little tiny Hitler baby dick could get. He probably gripped it between his, his, his point finger and his, and his thumb, just, you know, like real delicate-like, and just stroked it as hard as you can stroke, a, a phallus the side of a size, excuse me, of a fucking first-grader's pinky. Probably felt so good to bounce his one cyclops nut as he stroked. Probably even had his niece come over and shit on his face or something to really, truly celebrate Uh, Beginning on this terrible night of March 11th and the weeks that followed, violence against Jews erupted across the country. Austrian Nazis, others beat up, attacked, humiliated Jews. They forced Jews to clean public toilets, perform humiliating exercises, held rabbis down, shaved their beards, spit on them, punched them in the face, all sorts of shit. Uh, The especially targeted religious Jews. They had so-called scrubbing parties. Nazis would force Vienna's Jews to literally scrub the city streets while a giant jeering crowds mocked them The Gestapo, along with Austrian Nazis and sympathizers, looted Jewish belongings, seized Jewish businesses, arrested those who refused to surrender their property. Furthermore, aggressive anti-Jewish legislation was put in place almost immediately, forcing Jews from their positions, essentially expelling them from the country's economic, social, and cultural life. Life completely, dramatically, tragically changed for Austria's entire Jewish population literally overnight. Terrified Jews, leftists, others who just hated the Nazis, now trying to flee Austria, racing towards the country's borders, hoping to reach them before they're closed. Some managed to escape. Many did not. Many trapped in a rapidly Nazifying Austria. For those lucky enough to escape, the price was heavy. Special taxes of all sorts uh, for visas, passports, health certificates, etc. Some had to renounce from ever returning to the land of the German Reich. Chancellor Kurt von Schuschnick remained in Vienna and was placed under house arrest. Within months of the Anschluss, all Jews ordered to move to Vienna, eventually to the ghetto of Leopoldstadt. Chancellor uh, Shuschnik would spend most of World War II in a variety of concentration camps himself, uh, including Dachau, uh, narrowly avoiding an execution order that came straight from Hitler shortly before the Allies liberated the camps. He'd moved to the U.S. after the war, settled in St. Louis, Missouri, professor of political science at St. Louis University from 1948 to 1967. Taught an entire generation of students exactly how evil the Nazis were after seeing it firsthand, how they rose to power. Then he returned to Austria, died at the age of 79 in 1977. So, uh, you know, hail Chancellor Schulznik. Another another good one. April 26, 1938, day for the mandatory registration of all property held by Jews living inside the Reich. All Jews who hadn't already had their shit taken from them. On April 27th, 1938, All Jews with total assets in real estate, personal possessions, bank or savings accounts, securities, insurance policies, pension payments, etc. Worth more than the equivalent of then $2,000 US dollars, ordered to declare all their assets by the end of June 1938. Those asset declarations will end up totaling over $800 million. The equivalent of over $16 billion today. Nazi authorities were supposed to use these assets to fund war preparations. But a lot of the money wound up in the pockets of individual Nazis who just plundered that shit. As a shock to fucking no one, uh, there was an insane amount of corruption within the Nazi ranks. It's almost as if they didn't attract a lot of people with strong moral fiber or something. May 1939 now, second uh, lieutenant of the SS, Adolf Eichmann, establishes a system, a model in Austria for solving the Jewish problem. Probably need to do a whole suck on Eichmann someday. His role in the Nazi party, his escape to Argentina at the end of the war, uh, his uh, eventual capture, trial and execution plays out like a Fucking thriller movie. Anyway, Eichmann's solution was to evict the Jews and keep as much of their assets as possible. During the Anschluss in March of 1938, Eichmann had actually personally led a raid on the Jewish cultural community offices. He set up a central office of Jewish immigration to make this process quicker. He would write on May 8th, 1939, all Jewish organizations in Austria have been ordered to make out weekly reports. The first issue of the Zionist Rundschau is to appear next Friday. I am now on the boring job of censorship. In any case, I've got these gentlemen on the go. You may believe me. They are already working very busily. I demanded an immigration figure of 20,000 Jews without means uh, for the period from April 1st, 1938 to May 1st, 1939, from the Jewish community and the Zionist Organization for Austria. And they promised to me that they would keep to this. According to internal estimates, the central office facilitated the immigration of 110,000 Austrian Jews between August 1938 and June 1939. Central office was so successful in its forced immigration efforts, it created a template often called the Vienna model or, uh, for a Reich, a, a Reichwide wide Reich central office for Jewish immigration. This is where Eichmann gets his real start. Uh, he'll soon be the man put in charge of coordinating the details of the final solution when it appears in January of 1942. After that, he'll organize uh, the identification assembly and transportation of Jews from all over occupied Europe to their final destinations at Auschwitz and other extermination camps and, German-occupied Poland. But before literal extermination was a Nazi party plan, Jews were allowed to settle in neighboring countries such as Belgium, France, and Czechoslovakia. But as German occupation spread across the continent, these countries no longer safe. Refugees became increasingly desperate to escape. How fucked, right? You pack up all your shit, or worse, you're forced to leave behind all your shit, everything you and your family have ever worked for. You move to a neighboring country, right? You start to reestablish your life there, and then just a couple years later, you have to do it all over again when the Nazis follow you. Forced mass deportations created a dilemma for many nations, including the United States. How would they respond to these refugees' plight? These people just trying to get out of all of Europe now. Would they welcome Jewish refugees or refuse them admission? In July 1938, delegates from 32 nations met in Evian, France uh, uh, to discuss how to respond to the refugee crisis. Each representative expressed regret about the current troubles of the refugees, but most said they were unable to increase their country's immigration quotas, citing a worldwide economic depression. So, shitty timing. The Great Depression happening along with all this other Nazi shit. Uh, The representatives spoke in general terms, not about people, but about numbers and quotas. In the end, only one country, the Dominican Republic, officially agreed to accept up to 100,000 Jewish refugees from Europe. Uh, Dictator Rafael Trujillo, influenced by the international eugenics movement, believed that Jews would improve the racial qualities of the Dominican population. What the fuck? Only about a thousand would relocate to the Dominican Republic. Today, there's about 3,000 there in a nation of a little over 10 million. How fucking weird, right? They're getting kicked out of one nation, a spreading nation, because they're considered to be racially inferior and then welcomed into another nation because there they're considered racially superior and both ideas are fucking nonsense. Uh, Like most other countries, the United States did not welcome Jewish refugees from Europe. 1939, 83% of Americans opposed to the admission of refugees. Uh, in the midst of the Great Depression, many feared the burden that immigrants uh, would place uh, on the nation's economy. Refugees, who in most cases were prevented from bringing money or assets with them, you know, greater cause for economic concern. Well, e- economic concerns certainly did play a large role in Americans' attitudes towards immigration, so too did feelings of fear, mistrust, and even hatred of the Jews who were different. Anti-Semitism, sadly, you know, was alive and well in the U.S. and played an important role in public opinion. Had the refugees been Christian, would they have probably been accepted? Uh, yeah, probably, if not certainly. American anti-Semitism propagated by leaders like Father Charles Coughlin, known as the radio priest who was the first to offer Catholic religious services over the radio. He reached millions of people, right, each week with his broadcasts, and he was a fucking piece of shit. He often preached anti-Semitism, accusing the Jews of manipulating financial institutions, conspiring to control the world, other tired old lies still getting spread around by more morons today. Uh, despite obstacles to immigration, some 200,000 Jews did manage to reach the U.S. between 1933 and 1945. Still this number, small fraction of those who wanted to come. The vast majority of the world, the U.S. included, did not step up to help the Jews flee in the Holocaust. After the Evian Conference, Hitler is said to have concluded, nobody wants these criminals. So this just emboldens him further. August 1st, 1938, Adolf Eichmann, establishes the Office of Jewish Immigration in Vienna to increase the pace of forced immigration. August 17th, the law on the alteration of family and personal names sets new name requirements for Jews in Germany. This law states that Jews can only be given specific Jewish first names. New Jewish parents must choose a name from this Nazi-approved list, right? Makes their kids easier to track, not scary at all. Also, any Jew who does not already have a name from this list must add an additional first name to their name, Israel for men, and Sarah for women. Individuals have to report their new names to government offices. They also have to use both their given and added first names for business transactions, so everybody knows who they are. September 30th, 1938, Hitler making big moves again. This time he has his eyes on the Sudetenland area in Czechoslovakia, had a substantial German population and important industrial resources. He told his generals, May 1938, that he intended to smash Czechoslovakia by military action in the near future. That September, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain goes to Germany twice to discuss the situation with Hitler. Hitler demands not only the prompt German annexation of the Sudetenland, but that uh, all the Germans elsewhere in Czechoslovakia should be allowed to join the Third Reich. Then he makes a ballsy move, tells Chamberlain straight up that he doesn't think Britain or France is going to do fucking thing to stop him. And he was right. Uh, like almost everyone in Europe, including most Germans, Chamberlain thought that practically anything was preferable to a repeat of World War I. He thought if Hitler got his desired land, that maybe he'd be satisfied and agree to be peaceful after that. You know, he'd fucking calm down. So the leaders of Britain, France, Italy, agreed to the German annexation of the Sudetenland in exchange for a pledge of peace from Hitler. Because you can trust him. That's the one thing about him. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. If he's like, I'll be nice now, you know he's going to be nice. I, I will be nice now. I, I feel
2: be nice. Maybe
1: that's better. Uh, no Czech representative was invited to the conference. And I think I've said this in previous sucks, but I just do love to imagine Hitler doing nothing but yelling. I will be very nice, I promise to you! I'll be very nice! Like he just That's the only voice he has. Uh, Chamberlain had asked for the Czech ambassador to Berlin to come to Munich as an advisor, but not allowed to be in the same room as Hitler. Ultimately, Czechoslovakia agrees to give Hitler what he wants under significant pressure from France and Britain. It's basically like, give him what he wants or he's going to kick the shit out of you, and we're not going to help. Uh, when Chamberlain leaves Munich, Hitler reportedly said, if ever that silly old man comes interfering here again with his umbrella, I'll kick him downstairs. I will kick the silly man downstairs. Uh, the French and British leaders fly home in triumph to adoring uh, welcomes from their people who felt huge relief that, you know, another European war had been avoided, at least for the time being. German troops now marched into the Sudetenland uh, the night of October 1st, day before the Czech government accepted the Munich Pact. Uh, General Sar- Saravi, the Czech premier, told his people on the radio that he had experienced the most tragic moment of his life. He said, I am fulfilling the most painful duty which can ever have fallen upon me a duty which is worse than dying. The forces arrayed against us oblige us to recognize their superiority and act accordingly. In Germany, the tone couldn't have been more different, right? In a speech, Joseph Goebbels said, we have all walked on a thin tightrope uh, tight over a dizzy abyss. The world is filled with a frenzy of joy. Germany's prestige has grown enormously. Now we are really a world power again. So much cheering, so much hugging, tears. Yay, we're doing it. October 5th, 1938. Germans now mark all Jewish passports passports, with a large letter J to restrict Jews from immigrating to Switzerland. And uh, Switzerland actually asked Germany to do this. They didn't want to harbor harbor too many Jewish refugees. Uh, They felt it would be bad economically. Also, they didn't want to anger Hitler by building up a large Jewish community there. October 38, 1938, uh, 17,000 Polish Jews living in Germany are forced to immigrate now to Poland, except Poland doesn't want to let them in. So most of them have to uh, live for many long weeks near the Polish border. In most cases, they're driven into the surroundings of a few Polish towns with names. I have fucking no clue how to say. Not even going to try to get close. Uh, I'm so far off. So uh, l- listen to a Polish name, a Polish man on Forvo.com, pronounce them, And I don't even know what letters I would use to write down what he was saying. English alphabet has 26 letters. Uh, Polish alphabet has 32, but it sounds like uh, they have about a 1,000. In one of these towns, according to various sources, between six and 10,000 Jews gathered in the space of a few days, large refugee camp is was created. It wasn't until the end of November 1938 that the Polish authorities decided to disband the camp and allow them you know, residency in Poland. Uh, the son of one of the families in that big refugee camp, living in Paris at the time, uh, furious, uh, decides to draw international ex- attention to the plight of all these expelled Polish Jews and so he shoots German diplomat Ernst Rath in Paris with a pistol, seriously wounding him, right? We've talked about this a little bit before the timeline. Timeline, uh, When Rath dies two days later, the Nazis use his death to create more chaos and confusion to further punish Jews for being born into religion, culture, and ethnicity different from their own. November 9th, 1938, an immensely scary time to be living as a Jew in any area controlled by Germany, uh, about to get a lot scarier. This is the night I mentioned that will be known as the Kreisternacht, the night of broken glass, right? Starting in the late hours of November 9th, continuing to the next day, Nazi mobs torch otherwise vandalized hundreds of synagogues throughout the Reich damage, if not completely destroy thousands of Jewish homes, schools, businesses, hospitals, cemeteries, etc. About a hundred Jews murdered during the violence, countless others beaten. Nazi officials ordered German police officers, firemen to do nothing as the riots raged and the buildings burned firefighters uh, were allowed to extinguish blazes that did threaten uh, Aryan-owned property, of course, though. All in all, approximately 200 synagogues destroyed. Uh, you know, different sources, different numbers. 7,500 Jewish shops uh, looted. Uh, 30,000 male Jews rounded up, sent to concentration camps across Germany and its, uh, you know, taken lands. The violence of Kristallnacht served notice to German Jews that Nazi anti-Semitism, not a fad. This is not going away. This is only going to intensify. Uh, No one punished for taking part in the death and destruction. No non-Jewish people anyway. More now began to seriously plot their escapes. November 12th, just two days later, a decree passes in Germany forcing all Jews to transfer retail businesses over to Aryan hands, right? It just gets worse and worse. Three days later, November 15th, all Jewish pupils expelled from German schools. That same day, American president Franklin D. Roosevelt responds to news of Christelnacht by reading a statement to the media in which he harshly denounces the rising tide of anti-Semitism in Germany. He also recalls Hugh Wilson, his ambassador to Germany, even though Roosevelt condemned Nazi violence, U.S. refused to ease the immigration restrictions it had in place, constraints that prevented masses of German Jews from, you know, escaping this terror that Franklin is, uh, or Roosevelt is denouncing. So FDR's words, you know, they don't mean fucking shit to any Jewish people trapped in Hitler's bold, new, terrifying world. They also don't mean shit to any American Jews who have family or friends trapped over in Hitler's hellscape. January 30th, 1939, Hitler delivers a new and fucking terrifying speech to his pseudo-parliament, the Reichstag. All right, They're now a parliament in uh, name only. They're doing whatever Hitler tells them to do. Known as the Reichstag speech, Hitler outlines, uh, outlines now the plan for Nazi Germany, not to just resettle Jews, but to exterminate them. He will say, in connection with the Jewish question, I have this to say. For hundreds of years, Germany was good enough to receive these elements, although they possessed nothing except infectious political and physical diseases. Jesus Christ. What they possess today, they have by a very large extent gained at the cost of the less astute German nation by the most reprehensible manipulations. Today, we are merely paying these people back what it deserves. Above all, German culture is German and not Jewish, and therefore its management and care will be entrusted to members of our own nation, Europe cannot settle down until the Jewish question is cleared up. Good God, man, such slanderous nonsense. Germany's Jewish population had literally never done anything to harm the state. It had only strengthened it by being a subculture with a more consistent focus on education and fiscal responsibility than most of its Christian counterparts. And that's not slander. That's a fucking fact. According to a 2014 religious landscape survey conducted by my favorite research organization, The Pew Research uh, Center, their website, uh, a fucking treasure trove of nonpartisan data. In in 2014, 59% of adult Jewish Americans had a college degree. Baptists, 12%. Pentecostals, 15%. Catholics, 26%. And on and on and on. Uh, You know, uh, also according to 2005 data, 14.1% of U.S. doctors identified as Jewish, despite only accounting for 1.9% of the general population. 21.7% of U.S. doctors identified as Catholic- but made up 26.7% of the population. Per capita, no culture kicks out more doctors than Jewish community in America, race not even close. And I throw out these stats because comparative data for Germany in the 1930s does not exist. But I am strongly guessing that the ratios would be similar. And I bring this up to illustrate that the Jewish culture, not parasitic, hardworking and education focused. You don't become a doctor unless you successfully achieve a high degree of education and education attained through hard fucking work. Uh, guessing you all know that Hitler was full of shit, I just like to lay out data to help illustrate how truly full of shit he was. Hitler was probably intimidated by the intellectualism of many of his Jewish counterparts. They probably made his art school reject, micropeen fucking one-balled ass feel stupid and less than. Maybe that's why he hated them, right? They were better than him and he fucking knew it. Uh, let me finish his speech now, this little excerpt of it anyway, with the, uh, I think, the appropriate music behind it.
2: We must once and for all get rid of the opinion that the Jewish race was only created by God for the purpose of being in a certain percentage of parasite living on the body and the reproductive work of other nations. Today I will once more be a prophet if the international Jewish financiers
1: I like to make his voice shake here.
2: In and outside of Europe should succeed in plunging the nations once more into world war. The result would not be the conversation of the earth. And the victory of Jewry was the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. And then he just gets his little tiny pinkies. Ah, ah,
1: Just starts jerking off his tiny little dick with
2: his. ah, Look at how strong I am the Führer.
1: He's such a fucking dumb piece of shit. Holocaust, now closer to hand than ever. February 1939, the head of a major Nazi controlled Austrian bank consortium, Hans Roffelsberger notes that 77.6% of the ironization of Jewish shops and businesses of a total of more than 36,000 that were to be kept functioning, uh, that were to be kept functioning, about 4,000 have been achieved. So right, almost all the businesses have been transferred over. Uh, the majority had gone to Nazi party members. Of course they had. These Nazis just straight up stole their neighbor's shit. New law passes. Hey, that business you worked really hard over multiple generations to, uh, to build up. Well, law says you literally have to hand it all over to me. So fuck you. Legalized gangsters. March 15th, 1939, Germans successfully occupy Czechoslovakia. September 1st, 1939, Germans invade Poland. Marking the day many will continue to remember as the official beginning of World War II. To justify this action, Nazi propagandists accused Poland of persecuting ethnic Germans living in Poland. Uh, they weren't. Uh, reminds me of Putin's justifications for invading Ukraine. right? Putin and Hitler, cut from the same cloth in so, so many ways. Uh Nazis also falsely claimed that Poland was planning with its allies, Great Britain and France, to encircle and dismember Germany. the SS, in collusion with the German military, staged a phony attack on a German radio station now, which they then falsely accused Poland of committing. Right? This was uh one of the rare actual false flag operations. The the Gleiswitz incident. Hitler then launched a retaliatory, retaliatory, in quotes, uh campaign against Poland, full-scale invasion. Germany launched a surprise attack at dawn, September first, nineteen thirty nine. With an advanced force consisting of more than 2,000 tanks, supported by nearly 900 bombers and over 400 fighter planes. Uh, in all, Germany deployed 60 divisions, nearly 1.5 million soldiers in the invasion. Hundreds of thousands of refugees, both Jewish and non-Jewish, flee the German advance. Poland will fight back, but unfortunately not effectively. Right, The Nazi war machine has just grown too fucking powerful for them to stop it. Uh, Western Poland falls to Germany in a matter of a few weeks. Resistance fighters will continue to fight for the duration of World War II. But for all intent and purposes, uh, Poland belongs to Germany. Well, part of it does. The part that didn't fall to Russia. Poland got so fucked here. Uh, Russia also invades Poland. Super fun times. Two massive war, war machines led by two of the worst people of all time, Hitler and Stalin, invade their country in the same fucking month. Man, poor Poland. Geographically, they were located in basically the worst spot on Earth. In the 20th century. Well, them in Korea, right? Before it was divided. Uh, excuse me. September 3rd, 1939, Britain and France declare war on Germany. Then Poland finds itself fighting a two-front war with the Soviet Union, uh, when the Soviet Union invades, on September 17th. Polish government flees the country the same day. Can't blame them. The outcome of the double invasion, 100% not going to be Polish independence. September 21st, Reinhard Heydrich, chief of the Reich security office, that includes the Gestapo and S.D., it issues directives to establish ghettos in German-occupied Poland now. Just a few days later, after heavy shelling and bombing, Warsaw surrenders to Germany, September 27th. Then in accordance with their secret protocol to the Non-Aggression Pact, Germany and the Soviet Union partition Poland divided amongst themselves September 29th. When the Soviets uh, annexed Eastern Poland, about 300,000 Jewish refugees from German-occupied Poland were trapped. The vast majority of these refugees remained in Soviet-occupied Poland. Over the following years, the Soviet secret police arrest and deport uh, as, quote, unreliable elements, hundreds of thousands of residents of eastern Poland, including thousands and thousands of Jewish refugees from German-occupied Poland. Those arrested deported to Siberia, Central Asia, other locations in the interior of the Soviet Union. About 40,000 Jewish refugees continued their flight from Poland, fearing arrest and persecution in either German or Soviet-occupied territory. Neither place good for them. Hitler wasn't the only evil motherfucker who didn't mind destroying them. Thousands of refugees escaped to the south, booked passages on ships leaving Black Sea ports in Bulgaria and Romania. To reach British-controlled Palestine, their ultimate destination, the boats needed to refuel in Turkey. However, Turkish authorities prevented refugees from traveling through their country unless the refugees had permits from Britain to enter Palestine, which they didn't. By the time refugees reached the German-Soviet demarcation line and other, and, or other borders, excuse me, they usually found those borders closed and heavily guarded. And many refugees uh, then had to attempt, you know, to sneak across, often at great danger. Those caught trying to cross between occupation zones or trying to flee without papers would face arrest. Arbitrary violence at the hands of both Soviet and German border guards, uh, often execution. executions. Um, you know, for others, the prospect of permanent exile away from their homes was overwhelming. Penniless, tired of aimlessly wandering, despairing of seeing their families in the German occupied zone of Poland. Again, uh, some refugees just headed home. Back across the German-Soviet demarcation line into German-occupied Poland. Meanwhile, on the German side, after the defeat of Polish forces, German authorities immediately began to enforce racial policies in occupied territories, right? This new one. They required Jews to identify themselves by wearing white armbands with the blue star of David, conscribe them to uh, uh, forced labor. They expel hundreds of thousands of Poles from their homes, settle more than 500,000 ethnic Germans in their place. It's amazing how much fucking carnage they created in such a short amount of time. October 1939, Nazis now start systematically killing those they deem unworthy of life. In the spring and summer of 1939, number of Nazi planners had begun to organize a secret killing operation targeting disabled children. Yep. Satan himself got the chills down in hell. He was like, holy fuck, Baphomet. Are you kidding me? Get a load of these motherfuckers. And we thought we were evil. Even even I don't uh, target disabled children. Then Satan went back to, uh, I don't know, butt-fucking good people who hadn't got baptized the right way or whatever he's supposed to be uh, doing down in hell. Uh, The plan to start executing disabled children in mass led by two really cool dudes, uh, Philip Buehler, director of Hitler's private chancellery, and Karl Brandt, Hitler's attending physician. A couple of real teddy bears. The plan was named T4 after the street address of the program's coordinating office, the uh, Torgartenschlager 4. Under the leadership, operatives established six gassing-slash-euthanasia installations. In August of 1939, the Reich Ministry of the Interior circulated a decree requiring all physicians, nurses, and midwives to report newborn infants and children under the age of three who showed any signs of severe mental or physical disability. Then beginning in October of 1939, public health authorities began to encourage parents of children with disabilities to admit their young children to one of a number of brand new, specially designated pediatric clinics throughout Germany and Austria, These specialty clinics were, you know, killing centers. Their specially recruited medical staff murdered young charges by lethal overdoses of medication or to be extra humane and lovey-dovey, they literally starved these fucking kids to death. God, just taking a fucking claw hammer to them would have been more merciful. At first, medical professionals and clinic administrators included only infants and toddlers in the operation. But then, you know, once that line's crossed, why not keep pushing things further? I mean, once you've gone to a place where you can sleep a night after starving disabled toddlers to death, why not kill a bunch of other kids? Now they included kids of up to 17 years old. Uh, Conservative post-war estimates uh, suggest that at least 10,000 physically and mentally disabled German children perished as a result of this child euthanasia program for the glory of the Reich. Uh, Then they started going after disabled adults or, you know, just people too old and feeble to continue to contribute to Germany's glory. T4 planners began to distribute carefully formulated questionnaires to all public health officials, public and private hospitals, mental institutions, nursing homes for the chronically ill and aged. These forms gave the impression that the survey was just intended to, uh, you know, gather some statistical data. But of course, it was all about uh, figuring out who should live and who should die. Then beginning in January of 1940, T4 functionaries began to remove patients selected for the euthanasia program from these various institutions, The patients are transported by bus or rail to one of the gassing installations. Their families will later receive an urn with their ashes and a death certificate. So that's nice, right? At least they they give them an urn. Hey, I know you lost a kid, but check out this fucking cool urn. You're welcome. Because it was widely unpopular with German citizens, uh, Hitler would kind of stop this euthanasia program in 1941 after it claimed the lives of uh, at least 70,000 people. (laughs) Jesus. It would then operate in a more limited and uh, secretive capacity throughout the end of World War II. T4 would lay the groundwork for the Holocaust in a big way. The gas chambers they used would become the backbone of the plan to kill European Jews. And many of the T4 experts, quote unquote, would go on to play large roles in the operations of Holocaust concentration camps. October 12th now, 1939. Germany begins deportation of Austrian and Czech Jews to Poland. Just over two weeks later, October 28th, the first Polish ghetto was established in Uh, uh By April 9th, 1940, the Nazis occupied Denmark and southern Norway. They'd take the rest of Norway over the next few months. When Germany occupied Denmark, the Jewish population, approximately only 7,500, accounting for only 0.2% of the country's population. About 6,000 of these Jews are Danish citizens. The rest, German, Eastern European refugees. Most Jews lived in the country's capital and largest city, Copenhagen. Germans actually permitted the Danish government complete autonomy in running their domestic affairs, including maintaining control over the legal system and police forces, Meaning that the Danish government would not require Jews to register their property and assets to identify themselves or give up apartments, homes, or businesses. I just don't think there was enough of them for Germany at this point in time to care was the Nazi priority. Let's talk about Norway briefly. Nazis believed that Norwegians were actually racially, although not culturally, superior to them. Hitler hoped to win them over to his worldview. Rather than deploy the policies of mass extermination and slave labor used in Eastern Europe, he courted them through propaganda and other incentives. Or I guess not other incentive, just incentives. He was, uh, <laughs> he was such a fucking lunatic. Uh, within months of the April 1940 invasion, the Nazis began to develop sweeping plans for the transformation of Norway's towns and landscapes while publicly promising the Norwegians that the occupation was temporary, just a measure to protect them from British aggression. They really like, they they, they dealt with Norwegians with like kid gloves because Norwegian, because uh, uh, Hitler had a fucking hard-on for uh, New Trondheim, also referred to as North Star, was the most grandiose of the projects the Nazis had in Norway, They wanted to build an entirely new city for the Germans. Hitler commissioned Albert Speer to design uh, this new city on the Trondheim Fjord, which was also intended to serve. uh, uh, the, The site had a vast new German naval base as well. Hitler imagined it as a new cultural hub in the north for Nazi Germany with the German art museum, opera house, as well as many other luxurious amenities. Occupied Norway also became a focus of the Lebensborn Lie- program initiated in Germany by Heinrich Himmler in 1935 to encourage the birth of Aryan babies, yet another insane Nazi program. Intending to harvest the Norwegian's supposedly superior genes to improve the racial health of the German population, these lunatics established more maternity centers in Norway than in any other country, including Germany. Uh, treated these children like like precious natural resources in Norway that could benefit the uh the Reich. The Nazis devised a pipeline that would send hundreds and hundreds of babies from Norway to Germany. They just would flat out fucking kidnap uh Norwegian kids that they felt had superior Aryan genes, hand them over to Nazi families in Germany so they could be indoctrinated into Nazi culture Fuck. it's it's hard to accept oh my it's just uh, it's hard to wrap your head around how insane all this shit is just collectively. Uh, Norwegian Nazification attempts uh, aroused strong resistance. Norwegian is not a fan of Hitler. Uh, The Germans encountered strikes, protests. uh, They had to declare martial law and hand out some death sentences to get them to calm down a bit. Germans wouldn't leave Norway until late 1944 when they needed all hands on deck uh, back down south in a futile attempt to keep Allied powers from fucking eradicating them. May 7th, 1940. The Lodz Ghetto in Poland sealed with 165,000 people inside in just 1.6 square miles. Over the following two years, almost 40,000 Jews would be deported to the Lodz ghetto, 20,000 from Germany, Austria, the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, and Luxembourg, and almost 20,000 more from smaller provincial towns. In total, approximately 210,000 people forced to live in the Lodz ghetto, less than two square miles of land. The Jews of Lodz had formed the second largest Jewish community in pre-war Poland after Warsaw. Now they were isolated from the rest of Lodz, right? Their former neighbors and friends with barbed wire fencing. German police guarded the ghetto perimeter while internal order in the ghetto, largely the responsibility of the Jewish ghetto police. To really get a look at how life played out in a a Jewish Nazi ghetto, you can listen to episode 171 on the Warsaw Ghetto. As early as May 1940, the Germans established factories in the Lodz ghetto, used Jewish residents for forced labor. By July 1942, there were 74 workshops within the ghetto, major factories producing textiles, especially uniforms for the German military. Uh, Mordecai Rumkowski, chairman of the Jewish council in the Lodz ghetto, hoped to prevent destruction of the ghetto by making it as productive as possible, right? Just trying to survive. He hoped that making Jewish labor essential to German factories would spare Jews from eventual deportation and preserve the Lodz ghetto until the end of the war when they could be free again. But that would not save them from horrors inside the ghetto. Most of the quarter had neither running water nor a sewer system. Hard labor, overcrowding, starvation, defined life there. The overwhelming majority of ghetto residents worked in German factories, received meager food rations. More than 20% of the ghetto's population would die as a direct result of harsh living conditions, mostly die through starvation. May 10th, 1940, Germany invades the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. Campaign lasts six weeks. Belgium and the Netherlands surrender in May. Paris falls to the Germans June 14th, 1940. May 20th, 1940, a concentration camp is established at Auschwitz. If you've only heard of one concentration camp, odds are it's this one. Auschwitz, the German name for the Polish city of Oswiecim, the Auschwitz concentration camp located on the outskirts of Oswiecim, just about 40 miles west of Krakow. Construction of Auschwitz began in April 1940 in an abandoned Polish army barracks in a suburb of the city. Estimated that the Germans imprisoned at least 1.3 million people to the Auschwitz camp complex between 1940 and 1945. So many, hard to process that many people being sent there. Of those deportees, approximately 1.1 million get murdered. Roughly 1,095,000 Jews would be deported to Auschwitz. About 960,000 of them would die there, almost all who went there. Auschwitz would be the only concentration camp where prisoners would receive tattoos, right? A series of numbers to identify them on their forearms. Prisoners also had these numbers sewn into their uniforms. Only those prisoners selected for work were issued these numbers. Uh, prisoners sent directly to the gas chambers, of course, didn't need to get tattoos because they simply were just killed quickly and disappeared. May 20th, 1940, the first prisoners arrive at Auschwitz. The transport consists of some 30 German inmates categorized as professional criminals. The SS had selected them from the Sockenhausen concentration camp outside of Berlin. Less than a month later, June 14th, German authorities and occupied Poland deport 728 Polish prisoners to Auschwitz. This was the first of many transports of Poles to the Auschwitz camp. Like many concentration camps, Auschwitz had a gas chamber and crematorium. Initially, SS engineers constructed an improvised gas chamber in the basement of the prison block 11. Uh, Later, a larger permanent gas chamber was constructed as part of the original crematorium in a separate building outside the prisoner compound. It was a factory. It was a fucking death factory where they industrialized mass murder. Prisoners, mainly Jews, called Sonderkommandos, uh, forced to bury corpses or burn them in ovens. Because Nazis didn't want eyewitnesses, most uh, Sonderkommandos regularly gassed themselves. Fewer than 20 of the several thousand that would serve in that capacity would survive the war. Some Sonderkommandos buried their testimony in jars before their deaths to hopefully get the word out. November 16, 1940, the Warsaw Ghetto sealed. Ultimately, it will contain half a fucking million people. German authorities forced ghetto residents to live in an area of 1.3 square miles, an average of 7.2 persons per room. The, root, uh, the food there so severely rationed before Jewish residents started being moved to extermination camps, about 100,000 would die there of starvation, sickness and maltreatment related to starvation. Uh, from January 21st to January 26, 1941, Romanian fascist organization called the Iron Guard leads anti-Jewish riots in Romania, right? The hate just keeps spreading further and further. Over 100 Jews are butchered. Romania had allied itself with Germany July 5, 1940, the Iron Guard, with the help of a wide swath of Romanian society, police, university, high school students, union members, others would attack Jews on the street and in their homes, would ransack and or confiscate Jewish-owned property. They would kidnap Jews, bring them to torture centers, subject them to horrendous suffering before being murdered, synagogues destroyed. By the time World War II was over, Romanians would, outside of Nazi direct assistance, slaughter between 280,000 and 380,000 Jews. Hitler and his Nazis, not the only sadistic, mindless bigots in Europe. Centuries of anti Semitic sentiment had created deep seated fear and hatred in so many. February 1, 1941, German authorities began rounding up Polish Jews for transfer to the Warsaw Ghetto. April 6, 1941, Germany attacks Yugoslavia and Greece. More occupation follows. The attack on Yugoslavia, swift and brutal, an act of terror resulted in the death of 17,000 civilians, non combatants, in one fucking day. Largest number of civilian casualties in a single day since the start of the war. The Jewish population in Greece would be nearly eradicated. Uh, of its pre-war population of 75 to 77,000, only 11 to 12,000 would survive, either by joining the resistance or by being hidden. Most Greek Jews were sent to Auschwitz. The Nazis really fucked over Greece in general. About 10% of its total population would die during Nazi occupation. Over 40,000 civilians in Athens alone would starve to death during World War II. After taking Greece and Yugoslavia, the Nazis set their sights on even more expansion under the codename Operation Barbarossa. Hitler decided to make the move he'd been contemplating beaten off to for years. He'd always wanted to destroy the Soviet military by force, eliminate what he perceived as the communist threat to Germany, and take Soviet land for German Lebensraum a.k.a. that dumb living space idea. German military and police authorities intended to wage a war of annihilation against both the Soviet Union's Judeo-Bolshevik communist government and its citizens, particularly the Jews. They would murder millions of citizens. Nazis planned for special mobile killing units called Einsatzgruppen to go behind the front lines and conduct mass shootings. In addition, the German military planned slash hoped that tens of millions of Soviet citizens would starve to death the intended result of German occupation policies. Part of what made the Nazis such a dangerous military force was that they did not give a fuck about collateral damage or war crimes, not at all. If Hitler would have had access to nuclear weapons, he would have bombed a lot more than the two cities the US did in World War II. He would have fucking obliterated most of the world had he had the chance. I have no doubt in my mind, take the world over or burn everything to the fucking ground. Moscow, St. Petersburg, sure as shit, would not be here today if Hitler had gotten a bunch of nukes. London, also definitely gone. Uh, June 22, 1941, three German-led armies attacked the Soviet Union across a broad front. The Soviet armies initially overwhelmed. German units encircled millions of Soviet soldiers, cut off from supplies and reinforcements. The Soviet soldiers had few options other than to surrender. Many of them would then be executed. As the German army advanced deep into the Soviet territory, SS and police units followed the troops. The first to arrive were the Einsatzgruppen. These roving, killing death squads, targeted Jewish men, officials of the Communist Party and the Roma people. Generally, they shot them in mass and just tossed their bodies in mass graves. What a fucking job to have to work for one of these units, to just roam around rounding up innocent, unarmed citizens, mothers, fathers, children, babies, grandparents, just take them out of the woods and mow them down. If you were not evil when you started out working for one of these units, how fucked up would you be by the end of the war? How could you ever look in the mirror again without seeing a, a devil staring back at you? Uh, one of these, um, it's Commando uh, Eisen, 9 was a subunit of Eisengruppe B who following the occupation of Vilnius in present-day Lithuania in June of 1941 would shoot 500 Jews a day. My God, uh, Otto Ohlendorf was the leader of Gruppe D. His unit and three others operating behind, the, uh, behind and alongside the German army murdered between 1.5 and 2 million Jews in Eastern Europe. What the fuck? Instead of the systematic and mechanized killing of the concentration camps, the slaughter perpetrated by Ollendorf and his fellow commanders was face-to-face, right? Uh, The murdered usually perished relatively close to their homes. Uh, Using the ruse of resettlement, calls were given for Jews to assemble at a given time and place. Then the members of the special task forces would march them off, ostensibly to a place of transportation, But instead of being transported, the victims would arrive at places where pits, ditches, trenches, ravines would await them. In some cases, they had to dig their own graves, forced at gunpoint to jump down into these pits. They were shot after pleading for their lives and those of families and neighbors. They would shoot small children in a fucking pit before the very eyes of their parents who knew they were going to die moments later. Uh, The executioners, frequently intoxicated, became more and more numb to the end results of their deeds as the war went on. In April 1948, Ohlendorf would be found guilty for the mass murder of 90,000 men, women, and children, most of them Jewish. American officials would execute that sack of shit June of 1951. Uh, Late July, Heinrich Himmler's representatives arrived in the Soviet Union. Himmler himself would pay a series of visits to the Eisensgruppen units across the Soviet Union in mid-August 1941 probably watch some executions while I fucking beat off or something. Uh, during these visits, uh, Himmler orally issued instructions which encouraged the complete annihilation of Jews, regardless of age, gender, or a proven connection to communism. After each of his visits, murders of Jews in that area would quickly escalate. Mid-August 1941, the Soviets start beefing up their resistance. German forces would reach the gates of the Russian city of Leningrad, known today as St. Petersburg by September 1941, but they were quickly losing steam. We learned about the siege of Leningrad in the recent Putin suck, right? His parents were living there and would both survive a prolonged Nazi assault on the city. Speaking of Putin, you know I really don't like him, but he's got a lot of money. He pays well. And he bought an ad on this episode to advertise an album of new music he has. Hello, Capitals Pig and Western Filth Monkey. It is I, Vladimir Son of Vladimir Putin,
2: strongest pony boy in all of Russia. I want to breed your ear hole with fine music. I record no album of many original hit songs. You buy four thousand dollars per compact disc. Alright, all of it, very good. I give you taste. This Hotel California, dark desert highway, more warm smell. You get it. Up ahead, in distance, I see shimmering light. My head is very heavy. And uh, you know, my sight does not grow dim because that is weak. I, my sight stays strong, but I stop for night because I want to. And she stand in doorway. I hear a mission bell, and I'm thinking to myself, this is very fine lady for me to breathe her mouth, vagina and butt. She lights a candle because I tell her to. and she show me very many good ways. and I strong pony boy and do very good things to her body. And then I hear people say, Welcome to Hotel California, but not in the United States. It's Russia, California. It's a lovely place. Better than U.S. California. With lovely faces of Russian communist women. Plenty of rooms at Hotel California. Maybe some strong pony boy men. Any time of year, you find it here. It's a strong place to stay. So... That is what I write. It's my original song, and I like. And I also write and sing version, not version, uh, original of Let It Be. Freebird, Purple Haze, Sweet Child of Mine, of Wonderwall, Painted Black, Enter Sandman, Bobby McGee, I Keep Forgetting, Don't Stop Believing, and Prison Blues, You Can't Touch This, Ice Ice Baby. Many other original music by now. Maybe I not just breed your ear. Maybe I breed your mouth. Maybe I breed your strong butt vagina. Strong pony boy like me must breed so much for Russia and for special daddy. Okay. Thank you for listening. Please pay.
1: Um, yeah. So that's, uh, so that's our sponsor for the show. And again, I don't care for him, but he paid, uh, he paid us a million dollars for that. So, you know, what do you do? Back to 1941, St. Petersburg, formerly known as Leningrad now. Uh, roughly a million Russian civilians and soldiers. I needed that break. That was, that was fun. I needed to lighten up for a second because this is, ah, ah, it's darkness. Uh, roughly a million Russian civilians and soldiers uh, will not survive Nazi attacks. Nazis had initially expected to complete their invasion of the Soviet Union by the fall of 1941. Doesn't look like it's going to happen now. Uh, a brutal Russian winner is setting in, and they don't have enough food, medicine, and supplies to last through it. So consequently, German forces overstretched along a 1,000-mile-long Eastern Front become vulnerable to Soviet counterattack. Soviet Union Germany would volley attacks, counterattacks, back and forth for the following months. Meanwhile, September 1st, 1941, German Jews required to wear the Yellow Star of David with the word Jude now. In the autumn of 1941, approximately 338,000 Jews remain in German territory. Until this point, Hitler had been reluctant to deport Jews in the German Reich until the war was over because of a fear of resistance and retaliation from within the German population. But in the autumn of 1941, key Nazi figures contribute to mounting pressure on Hitler to deport German Jews. This pressure culminates in Hitler ordering the deportation of all Jews still in the Greater German Reich and Protectorate between September 15th and September 17th, 1941. Following this order, Himmler, Heydrich, Eichmann attempt to find space for the Jews in German territory in the already severely overcrowded ghettos of Eastern Europe. Officials in several ghettos, all informed that they will need to absorb this population of Jews from German lands, uh, irrespective of how overcrowded it is. The Minx ghetto, so full, in order to make room for some Reich Jews, the local SD, German army, and local collaborators gather roughly 25,000 existing local ghetto inhabitants, drive them over to a local ravine, and just fucking murder them. Now they have some empty beds. Uh, German Jews uh, soon filled their places. Uh, Similar murders take place in the Riga Ghetto, or Riga Ghetto. In the Lodz Ghetto, no local Jews are removed prior to the arrival of 20,000 more from the rest of the German territory. And of course, this results in more deaths from overcrowding, you know, from starvation and disease. Construction of Auschwitz II, or Auschwitz-Birkenau, now begins in October of 1941. The Auschwitz-Birkenau camp divided into 10 sections, separated by electrified barbed wire fences. Like the first Auschwitz camp, Auschwitz I, it was patrolled by SS guards, including, after 1942, SS dog handlers. This camp included sections for women, men, uh, a family camp for Roman people deported from Germany, Austria, and the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, and a family camp for Jewish families deported from the Threisenstadt ghetto. Auschwitz-Birkenau was also, of course, a killing factory, the most prolific of them all. Around the beginning of September 1941... Uh, excuse me, uh, the beginning of September, 1941, the SS at Auschwitz I conducted the first tests of Zyklon B gas as as a mass murder weapon using Soviet POWs and debilitated Polish prisoners as the first experimental victims. Zyklon B, a crystalline hydrogen cyanide, a highly poisonous insecticide, also used to kill rats and insects. Nazis would pump it into gas chambers to kill hundreds of thousands of human beings. But the Nazis wouldn't straight up tell the prisoners that what was going, that's, they they wouldn't say, oh my God. Excuse me. The Nazis would not straight up tell the prisoners that that was what was going to happen to them. More efficient and orderly not to. Instead, after the deportation trains arrived at the camps, guards ordered the deportees to get out and form a line. The victims went through a uh, selection process. Men separated, separated from women and children. A Nazi, usually an SS physician, would look uh, quickly at each person, decide if they were healthy and strong enough for forced labor. SS officer would then point to the left or to the right. Victims had no idea they were being selected to live or die. Babies, young children, pregnant women, the elderly, people with disabilities, the sick, very little chance of surviving the first election. Those who had been selected to die were then led directly to gas chambers. In his memoirs, written from a lifetime post-war sentence to prison before he killed himself in 1987, high-ranking Nazi Rudolf Hess described the process of tricking the Jewish people into entering the gas chambers. To avoid panic, they were told they just had to undress to be washed and disinfected. Nazi Nazi's guards used a special detachment team composed of other Jewish prisoners, how fucked up for those poor bastards, to help keep an air of calm and to assist those who were reluctant to undress. Children often cried, but after members of the special detachment team comforted them, they would enter the gas chambers playing or joking with one another, still often carrying their toys. Then they were uh, herded naked into the showers, and a guard would close and lock a steel door behind them. Some chambers were pumped full of carbon monoxide, others filled with Zyklon B. Within minutes after entering the gas chambers, everyone inside was dead after spending their final moments screaming and begging to be released. Gas in the chambers during the Holocaust entered the lower layers of air first, rose slowly towards the ceiling, which led to victims trampling one another in an attempt to keep breathing. The strongest victims often found on top of a pile of bodies. Other prisoners then forced to haul these corpses to a nearby room where they would remove hair, gold teeth, and fillings. The bodies then burned in ovens in the crematorium or buried in mass graves. Camp guards often stole the pillaged valuables. The rest would be put into SS bank accounts. Private business firms uh, would buy and use their fucking hair to make many products, including ship rope and mattresses. Fucking what? Mattresses. Imagine finding out that a mattress you're sleeping on is made from the hair of hundreds of men, women, and children who had been murdered. Holy shit. Imagine making that fucking mattress or that rope, knowing what the material was that you were using. My God. All this horror, not surprisingly, completely fucking broke so many people who witnessed it. Uh, Muselman, German for Muslim, was Nazi slang for concentration camp victims who just gave up. Just, you know, lost any hope of survival. They would squat with their legs tucked, their shoulders curved, their head dropped to their chests. Just done. Jewish writer and Holocaust survivor Primo Levi stated that if he could enclose all of the evil of our time into one image, I would choose this image. October 15, 1941, Hitler decides to deport German Jews to the occupied Soviet Union. Contributing to this decision were the rapid advances both on the military front and in the murder of the Soviet Jews. December 8, 1941, the Chelmo extermination camp begins operations 50 kilometers or 31 miles north of Lodz. Just over a month later, January 16th, German authorities, uh, you know, 1942, they begin to deport Jews from the Lodz ghetto to Chelmo or Chelmno. In eight months, they would deport approximately 70,000 Jews uh, and about 4,300 Roma to Chelmno. At Chelmno, a special SS detachment killed the Jewish deportees uh, deportees in mobile gas vans, trucks with hermetically sealed compartments that would serve as a gas chamber. At first, the Germans required that the Jewish council in Lodz prepare a list of deportees, but since that method failed to fill required kill quotas, they just resorted to police roundups pretty soon. German personnel would just shoot and kill hundreds of Jews, including children, the elderly, the sick, uh, during the deportation operations. Uh, Let's now meet someone who somehow survived all of this insanity. Numerous members of Eric Hirsch's family would be killed at the Chelmno concentration camp. Eric was born to a tight-knit Polish family, one of five siblings. The family followed the Jewish faith, and Eric attended a Jewish school. Uh, He had a happy childhood, going to the park, ice skating, singing solos in the school choir, Despite his happy childhood, he also later did remember some anti-Semitism. He would say, I was coming out from the school and a few Polish children shouted, go back to Palestine. I was born in Poland, a Polish subject, but according to them, we weren't Polish. On September 1st, 1939, when the German army invaded Poland, Eric's family fled their home and went to Lodz to stay with relatives. The journey to Lodz, you know, 65 kilometers, uh, 40 miles. They walked, whatever possessions they could carry was all they took with them. Took him three days. Eric saw German soldiers laughing, joking while humiliating Jewish men by cutting off their beards, doing other things along the way. Towards the end of 1941, authorities came to take Eric's father to a work camp. His father escaped. So then they tried to take Eric's brother as a replacement. He also escaped. So now they took 11 year old Eric. Eric was taken to a small uh, uh, Otashno to the smaller Otashno camp in Nazi occupied Poland. His job was cleaning the com- commandant's office he was able to survive there by being able to work indoors and steal scraps of food. Following year, 1942, Eric able to make it to the Lode's ghetto. Soon, he and his remaining family members taken from camps, gather in a church in a small village with numerous other Jews. Uh, there, they're sorted into groups. Eric manages to sneak into a line of people who are being taken back to the ghetto. His family, uh, with the majority of others at the church, were taken to the Chelmno death camp and murdered. Eric went to live in the ghetto orphanage, uh, worked in a textile mill for the next two years. As he remembered it, I didn't know what to do. I was on my own. The older people didn't have time for me, you know. So I went out on the street. I sat on the corner and I started crying. I didn't know what to do. I can't imagine. In 1944, Eric, uh, along with almost 200 children from the orphanage, would be forcibly marched to Auschwitz. Upon arrival at Auschwitz, he and other prisoners divided into two lines, right? That process called selection, healthy working age people, one line, everybody else, the other. Eric could tell the healthier looking people were being sent to, uh, to one side. So he quickly went in that side, uh, when a disturbance attracted, uh, distracted the guards. If Eric had not swapped lines, he was designated for the other line initially. Cause he was, you know, so young, he once again would have died. He would have been sent straight to the gas chamber. Eric was then shaved all over, made to shower before given a striped uniform tattooed with the number B7608 for the rest of the war. Eric lost his name and identity. He was just known to the Nazis as B7608. In Auschwitz, Eric had to work as an agricultural laborer. He plowed fields and how fucking dark is this? Fertilized these fields using the ashes from the crematoria. He felt pieces of bones in the ashes as he spread it. He knew exactly what the ashes were. Eric was later transferred to the fishing uh, commando to catch fish to be sent back to Germany to feed the Nazis and their supporters. So that's fun. Eventually, following the liberation from the Allies, Eric was brought to England in a group of 300 kids in August of 1945. These kids taken to the Windermere, uh, in the Lake District to recuperate and learn English. Eric then moved to Liverpool with some of the boys to learn a trade. He discovered that only 40 people from his hometown survived the war. Most of the population would be killed at the death camp in Chelmno, including most of his family. He lost 81 members of his family in the Holocaust. Eighty-one. Imagine some group of people, any group of people, taking out your entire fucking family like that. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings. Almost all of them killed. Only one of his sisters also survived and he would reunite with her uh, mania uh, two years after the war ended. At the age of 32, he would meet his future wife in Leeds. They were going to have three kids together. He didn't let all that break him. Nimrod's will strong in that beautiful bastard. He still lives in Leeds today. 1995, Hirsch publishes book, A Detail of History. All the proceeds have went to the Best Shalom Holocaust Center where he often gives presentations about his horrific experiences. Keeping the memories alive. Back to our timeline. Uh, now Hitler and the Nazis will reach the point they've been gearing up towards for a decade. January 20th, 1942. They now fully turn to the final solution. Not the resettlement, not the removal, but the extermination of all Jews in Europe. They already obviously have been killing many. Now they want to kill them all. On that date, January 20th, 15 high-ranking Nazi party and German government officials gather at a villa in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee to discuss and coordinate the extermination. Among them, Reinhard Heydrich, chief of the Reich security main office, one of Heinrich Himmler's top deputies, uh, Heinrich Mueller, chief of the Gestapo, Adolf Eichmann, Nazi in charge of Jewish affairs, and a ton more. The final solution was their codename for the systematic, deliberate, physical annihilation of all European Jews. Historians still not exactly sure when Adolf Hitler authorized the mass murder scheme, but it was at some point during 1941, during the invasion of the Soviet Union, as the Einsatzgruppen began roving the countryside and murdering Jews, at the Vonsi conference, Heydrich informed the officials that the final solution would be going forward as planned and coordinated with various government ministries to make sure everyone was on the same page. The question wasn't if the plan should be implemented, but how Heydrich indicated that approximately hundred or that approximately 11 million Jews in Europe would fall under the provisions of the final solution. And that evil motherfucker wanted to kill everyone, right? Every one of them. I wonder how much they laughed and smiled, patted each other on the backs as they actively set in motion a plan to kill over 10 million people whose only crime was being born Jewish. Heydrich concluded not only Jews residing in Axis-controlled Europe, but also the Jewish populations of the UK uh, and the neutral nations, Switzerland, Ireland, Sweden, Spain, Portugal, European, Turkey, no Jewish person on the entire continent would be safe. He would announce that during the course of the final solution, the Jews will be deployed under appropriate supervision at a suitable form of labor development in the East. In large labor columns separated by gender, able-bodied Jews will be brought to these regions to build roads, whereby a large number will doubtlessly be lost through natural reduction. Any, Any final remnant that survives will doubtless consist of the elements most capable of resistance. They must be dealt with appropriately, since representing the fruit of natural selection, they are to be regarded as the core of a new Jewish revival. Wow, man, natural reduction there was nothing natural about any of this uh, despite the flowery language the aim of the vonzi conference was uh, clear to the participants to further the coordination that would allow for quick and efficient murder of all europe's jews in may 1942 extermination by gas begins at the sovibor concentration camp the sovibor camp was built just west of sovibor a railway station near the small polish village of the same name nearby spur connected the railway to the camp to a larger rail line Dense force of uh, dense forest of pine and birch shielded the site from the eyes of locals, so prisoners could be unloaded in secret. In this thinly populated, swampy area on the eastern border of Poland, a quarter of a million Jews would be murdered by October of 1943. Just one of so many death camps. Uh, July 22nd, Germans established the Treblinka concentration camp. All throughout the summer of 1942, Jews would be deported to this camp from other concentration camps in Belgium, Croatia, France, the Netherlands, and Poland. Treblinka operated between July 23, 1942, October 19, 1943. During that time, between 700 and 900,000 Jews murdered in its gas chambers, along with roughly 2,000 Romani. More Jews murdered at Treblinka than any other Nazi extermination camp apart from the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex. Let's now meet another person unfortunate enough to be caught up in this highly coordinated and far-reaching extermination campaign, Rina Finder. For young Rena, December 31st, 1942 was a terrible New Year's Eve. It was the beginning of a new horrifying chapter in the life of the Jewish 13-year-old girl living in Krakow, Poland. That day, her father had been accused of being a member of the Jewish resistance. Uh, How terrible of him not to want to, uh, you know, let the Nazis just keep killing his friends and family. And he was arrested. Rena soon became one of the youngest Jewish workers in the enamelware and ammunition factory in Krakow, owned by Oskar Schindler. A businessman whose story of saving more than a thousand Jewish people during World War II was made famous by Schindler's List, the 1993 Steven Spielberg film adaptation of Australian author Thomas Keneally's 1982 historical fictional novel. At factories like Schindler's, uh, Jewish people were used as free labor. And his his story was, you know, there was fictional elements, but based on a lot of truth to make, you know, to be clear about that. Uh, At factories like Schindler's, uh, Jewish people were used as free labor. And when Schindler started out, quote, helping Jewish people, uh, his reasoning actually was not quite altruistic. He was afraid of getting drafted. He'd led a lavish lifestyle. He needed to k- keep funding if he wanted to have it continue. He made a lot more money or he would make a lot more money as a factory owner than he would in the military. So he landed on this idea that Jewish laborers would be cheaper than Polish workers who are not Jewish. Uh, then once they're working for him, Schindler starts to care about these people. Uh, he gets a sub camp constructed on his factory premises in 1943. Before this, SS guards would march them from the Poishouf, a subcamp where they lived to the factory and back home late at night. Schindler now tells officials he wants them closer so they can work more often, which was not entirely true. By housing them himself, the quality of their life would improve. At their new housing, the food was better. Males and females were no longer separated. Uh, Schindler did not allow SS guards into the housing area. They could stay in watchtowers, but not come in. And he was allowed to do this because he was productive with his factory. Uh, you know, Rena, who remembers making shells for ammunition, says she felt like Schindler did the best he could to take care of them. She said, he'd smile and ask you how you are, pat you on the head. I remember I had pneumonia and I stayed in the clinic for three days. If I got sick in Poichouf, they would have killed me. If you stayed in the clinic there for more than a day, they would shoot the patient. That didn't happen in Oscar Schindler's factory. Yeah, fucking think about that. If you were sick for more than one day, they just shot you. Kid, adult, man, woman, didn't fucking matter. Work to help the Nazi war cause, work very hard every day or your life has no value. And if the Nazis should win the war, there would be no reason to keep any of them alive any longer, and they would all just be killed. Uh, Finder also remembered a moment when a machine she was using stopped working. She said, I was crying. I was scared. The foreman accused me of sabotage. Schindler said a small girl cannot handle that machine, and nobody but a man should be using that machine. I was convinced he was sent from heaven. Again, had he not intervened, she most likely would have been killed. Wouldn't be until the summer of 1944 that the famous Schindler's List came into creation. When Schindler moved his operations from Krakow to uh, Brunnlitz concentration camp in present-day Czech Republic and wrote up a list of people sent to Brunnlitz to work, those people would be saved. Uh, maybe he wrote up that list. Uh, he was actually in jail when the list was made, uh, having been detained during an investigation into whether he had bribed a commandant, which he had. He had bribed numerous Nazi officials in order to save his workers, many of whom, including Rina Finder, would have been sent to Auschwitz and killed had he not done so. October of 1944, a Poishuf camp orderly named Marcel Goldberg may have made the lists that became Schindler's List. Uh, made two lists of people approved to go to Brünnlitz, and these lists probably can be considered Schindler's lists. Uh, he had never wrote it the way it was portrayed in the movie. Anyway, one list had the names of 300 women; the other had the names of 700 men. Throughout the war, Goldberg, a Jewish prisoner who had been forced by the Nazis to be a camp orderly, coordinated the transportation of Jewish slave laborers from Poishuf to other labor camps in German-occupied Central and Eastern Europe. Not clear exactly how Goldberg chose who would be on the list, but thought he included people he knew, perhaps friends of friends, uh, might have sought the advice of other Jewish inmates working in the office. Rena Finder's mother heard that Goldberg was compiling the list of young people with skinny fingers, good for factory work, and she said, my mother sent me to Marcel Goldberg. I went to him, told him my mother, and I wanted to be on the list, and he put us on the list. Before the 1,000 Jewish inmates could go to Brunlitz, they had to be inspected first, The men sent to Gross Rosen uh, concentration camp. The women sent to Auschwitz. Rena would later remember when we got to Auschwitz, we were so thirsty. We tried to catch the snowflakes, but it was not snow falling. It was ashes. That is so fucked. Oh my God. Uh, There we were told to undress for an inspection. I remember after they shaved my head, we were put in a dark room and cold water came down. We were completely naked. I remember looking at my mom and I couldn't recognize her. I said, now we won't suffer anymore because we are dead already. She said, we are not dead, we are alive. Schindler's new factory at Boonlitz would operate from October of 1944 through the German surrender in May of 1945. And Schindler would end up saving 1,098 people from almost certain death. With the money he made during the war, Schindler acquired 18 truckloads of wool, khaki material, shoes and leather, and then gave that to his workers. He told them, this is your money. After the war, the tables turned. Uh, The people who had once been his laborers went on to support him through a string of business failures. How fucking beautiful is that? He would die in 1944 in Frankfurt at the age of 66. He was buried in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, the only former member of the Nazi party to be honored in that way. Rena Finder, born in 1929, still alive, still grateful to Oskar Schindler. So hail Rena Finder, hail Oskar Schindler. Now back to the beginning of 1943, and thankfully the beginning of the fucking end for these Nazi pieces of shit. February 2nd, 1943, after months of fighting, the German Sixth Army surrenders to Russian forces in Stalingrad. 91,000 German soldiers have been surrounded by a Soviet force twice that size. After the victory at Stalingrad, the Soviet army remained on the offensive, going to first take back control of Ukraine, then virtually all of Russia and eastern Belarusia during 1943. The Nazis, with Hitler and his henchmen angrier and crazier than ever now, uh, started killing Jews at an unprecedented rate. From March 13th to March 16th, 1943, SS police authorities liquidate the Krakow ghetto. During the operation, the SS killed approximately 2,000 Jews, transfer another 2,000 members and families of the Jewish council and the Krakow ghetto police force to Poishuv. The SS then transport approximately 3,000 more Krakow Jews to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where the camp authorities select 499 men and 50 women for forced labor. The rest, you know, fucking killed in the gas chambers. Uh, April 19th, the Warsaw ghetto revolt begins as Germans attempt to liquidate the ghetto's 70,000 inhabitants there. And again, we covered that in depth in our Warsaw ghetto episode. Now in the spring of 1943, better late than never, but way too fucking late, the U.S. government finally gets more involved. This is all thanks to the efforts of Henry Morgenthau Jr. Morgenthau, born into a prominent Jewish family in New York City. His father, Henry Morgenthau Sr., prominent real estate investor and diplomat who once served as ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, a man who tried to get the U.S. to intervene during the Armenian Genocide. We covered that genocide and talked about him, uh, much lesser known, but just as a uh, catastrophic tragedy, this Armenian Genocide, in episode 230 of Time Suck. Morgenthau became FDR's secretary of the Treasury in 1934. As the only Jewish person in Roosevelt's cabinet, he became aware in 1938 that the immigration quota system not accommodating the number of Jewish refugees who needed sanctuary to escape persecution and certain death. To say Morgenthau was frustrated with the U.S. response to Hitler would be a huge understatement. U.S. government knew that Nazi concentration camps were carrying out mass killings. They'd gotten the news about the killings in September of 1942, But the State Department blocked the message, claiming that the murder of the Jews was a uh, war rumor when they knew different. Morgenthau knew it was the truth. By late November of 1943, the U.S. State Department informed that two million Jews had already been murdered. But the government's uh, response uh, to issue a, uh, a stern declaration that they vowed to push the bestial policy of cold blood extermination after the war, excuse me, to punish it, you know, was their response. Sorry, I know I worded that poorly. Obviously, they did not help the uh, the Jews being killed. We we'll covered that already. Uh, in the spring of 1943, months after the U.S. State Department confirmed the existence of a German policy and practice aimed at wiping out all the Jews in Europe, Morgenthau begging his colleagues now at the State Department, "Please do something." Morgenthau and his allies would eventually meet with Roosevelt, urge him, "Please do more. Let's uh, let's get a, at least a more focused relief effort." This would finally lead to the establishment of the War Refugee Board. But not until January 22nd, 1944, the War Refugee Board staff worked with Jewish organizations, diplomats from neutral countries and resistance groups in Europe to rescue Jews from occupied territories and provide relief to Jews hiding in uh, concentration camps. Excuse me, Jews in hiding and in concentration camps. They organized a psychological warfare campaign to deter potential perpetrators You know, try to counter propaganda with uh, their own kind of war of information. They opened a refugee camp in upstate New York and released the first details of mass murdered Auschwitz to the American people. The War Refugee Board would end up playing a crucial role in the rescue of tens of thousands of Jews. Uh, So that is obviously great. After the war, the War Refugee Board's first director, John Peel, called their work little and late uh, in comparison with the enormity of the Holocaust, which is obviously very fair. Uh, yeah, could have done so much more. June 21st, 1943, Himmler orders the liquidation of all ghettos in Poland and the Soviet Union. He writes in a memo, I order that all Jews still remaining in ghettos in the Ostland area be collected into concentration camps. Ostland covered present day Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. And then his second point, I prohibit the withdrawal of Jews from concentration camps for outside work from August 1st, 1943. Point three, a concentration camp is to be built near Rega to which will be transferred the entire manufacture of clothing and equipment now operated by the Wehrmacht outside. All private firms will be eliminated. The workshops are to be solely concentration camp workshops. The chief of the SS Economic and Administrative Main Office is requested to see to it that there will be no shortfall in the production required by the Wehrmacht as a result of this reorganization. Fourth point, inmates of the Jewish ghettos who are not required are to be evacuated to the east. Uh, His fifth point, as many male Jews as possible are to be taken to the concentration camp in the oil shale area for the mining of oil shale. And then his sixth point, no one, absolutely no one is to talk about Hitler's micro penis. There has been a few jokes made recently that have uh, been brought to his attention. He has killed many just thinking that they might've been the one to make that joke. So be careful. Uh, No, the sixth one is the date set for the reorganization of the concentration camps, August 1st, 1943. Uh, But in the summer of 1943, Not all goes, uh, not all goes according to Nazi plan. The Jewish resistance starts to fight back more effectively, mounting prolonged defenses in a multitude of ghettos. And then that resistance spreads to concentration camps as well. October 14th, 1943, an armed revolt takes place at the Sobibor extermination camp. 4 p.m., some prisoners lure guards to remote locations, kill 11 of them with knives and axes. That had to have felt great. Hail Nimrod. About 600 prisoners then break free, flee under machine gun fire with the grounds dotted with landmines, sadly only about half make it to the fences. Then search squads recapture and execute most of the rest, but some made it out. During the Sovibor prisoner uprising, Selma Winberg and Chaim Engel, who had fallen in love at the camp, escaped together. When the Germans invaded the Netherlands in 1940, Selma had been forced into hiding. 1942, they seized her during a roundup of Jews, sent her to two concentration camps in succession before then shipping her to Sovibor in April of 1943. Most prisoners sent to Sobibor were instantly gassed or shot. But Selma, who was 20, selected to sort the clothing of the dead. How soul-crushing. Selma and Haim uh, went on the run for at least two weeks before finding refuge after they escaped with a Polish peasant family who, for a small fee, hid them in a hayloft in their barn where they would remain for nine months. Stayed there until it was safe for them to set off on a long journey back to the Netherlands. She would write, We are in a little hayloft and live together in a little corner there was a sheet on top of the straw below us and we cover ourselves at night with hay for nine months. They did that. After the war, the couple who formerly married in 1945 settled in uh, Zvolá, where they established a textile store and had two kids. Their first child, baby boy, sadly died in 1944. Uh, After the war in the Netherlands, sadly faced deep resentment towards Chaim, who is a Polish Jew. Despite the massive losses that Poles themselves suffered in World War II, many in the Netherlands viewed Poland as complicit in the Holocaust. More than 100,000 Dutch citizens have been deported to camps in Poland. More than 34,000 Dutch Jews have been killed at Sobibor. The prejudice against them was so great, authorities threatened them with deportation, saying they were Polish citizens. Poland, though, no longer accepting citizens from other countries at that point, so they had to move to Israel, which they did in 1951, then to the U.S. in 1956. There, they would go on to testify at the war crime trials of some German officers. They provided written and oral accounts of their ordeal, were interviewed for books and other publications over the subsequent decades. Not long after Selma and Chaim escaped, Sovibor was liquidated, the camp was erased, buildings dismantled, the earth where they once stood plowed and planted with crops, the whole thing disguised as a farm before the war ended. But Selma and Chaim would not let the world forget. So hail Selma and Chaim as well. Back to the timeline, March 19, 1944, Nazi Germany invaded and occupies Hungary to stop Hungary from signing a peace treaty with the Allies. With that, Hungarian Jews' relative security from the Holocaust comes to a quick end. Within days, Adolf Eichmann arrives in Hungary, tasked with supervising the deportation of Hungarian Jews. The mass deportation begins in May, continues at a rate of over 10,000 a day until the end of July. By June 27th, 380,000 Hungarian Jews had been sent to Auschwitz. In total, more than 500,000 Jews and 28,000 Roma believed to have been deported after the German occupation of Hungary. Let's meet one of the Hungarian Jews who narrowly escaped Nazi death. Ebola uh, Ginsberg, known as Ebi, had grown up in a small town in Hungary, the eldest of four daughters. March 19, 1944, Germans invaded Hungary. The Jewish population immediately ordered to wear yellow stars. A few weeks later, Jewish people, including Ebi, rounded up, sent to live in overcrowded ghettos after just two weeks uh, in, in a ghetto, uh, EB's family ordered to pack up for a journey to Germany for work. Eby, Eby and her family forced into a cattle wagon uh, with only a bucket uh, to shit and piss in, right? put on a train. Uh, they were comparatively lucky. Not everyone even got a bucket. The journey took three days and now they found themselves at Auschwitz. Eby and her family helped from the wagons by men in striped uniforms uh, have to wait in a queue with hundreds of other people who've been crammed onto the same train right? And then, obviously, as we know from previous stories, separated. EB's father taken away first, then her mom, two youngest sisters, led away. EB and her 13-year-old sister Judith sent in a different direction, told they're going to work, and they'd see their family later. I think you know what happened. EB later learned that her mom, younger sisters, had been immediately taken to the gas chambers and executed. EB and Judith had their possessions and clothing taken away, their hair shaved, and they were issued camp uniforms, sent to a wooden barrack that had a concrete floor and wooden bunks were given very little food, had to stand for hours every day, whatever the weather, as thousands of prisoners were counted. Later, Evie would remember. And I thought to myself, but they can't stop birds flying over. And then I was looking for birds. I remember the whole afternoon and there were no birds. Birds didn't fly over us. And I thought to myself, this must be hell. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. Auschwitz. After three months in Auschwitz, E.B. and Judith were taken uh, to a- another forced labor camp in Germany. Final days of the war, they were liberated, taken to a hospital to recover. When she was well enough, she began working in that hospital. There, she met another concentration camp survivor, Val, who was recuperating after surviving forced labor in a different concentration camp. The Two fell in love, married. Neither of them wished to return to their home countries, so they moved to England in 1948, worked in the textile industry, had two daughters, remained a devoted couple for over 60 years. Both Val and Eby would devote their lives to Holocaust education for the rest of their lives. So hail Nimrod and hail Val and Eby. June 6, 1944, day you've probably heard of, known to Americans, many across the world as D-Day. June 6, 156,000 American, British, Canadian forces landed on a five, uh, along five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of the heavily fortified coast of France's Normandy region. They would liberate all of northern France by late August of 1944, beginning the end of Nazi aggression in Western Europe. Meanwhile, in the spring and summer of 1955, the Red Army repels Nazi forces in the east. Uh, I'm sorry, spring and summer of 1944. Uh, I don't know why I added 55, it's very different. Uh, Hitler losing his quest for world domination now on two fronts. July 24th, 1944, Russians liberate the Modinuk concentration camp in Poland. August 7th, 1944, inmates at Auschwitz revolt and succeed in blowing up that evil fucking crematorium. For months, young Jewish women had been smuggling small amounts of gunpowder from a munitions factory within the Auschwitz complex to men and women in the camp's resistance movement. Under constant guard, the women in the factory took small amounts of gunpowder, wrapped it in bits of cloth or paper, hid it on their bodies, passed it along a smuggling chain. On October 7th, 1944, having learned that the SS was going to liquidate much of the camp, resistance fighters managed to blow up the crematorium. But sadly, Germans would ultimately crush their rebellion. Around 250 prisoners died during the fighting. Guards murdered another 200 after the revolt was put down. Uh, Several days later, the SS identified four Jewish female prisoners who had been involved in supplying explosives to blow up the crematorium. All four were, of course, executed. At least they died fighting back. Uh, November 8th, 1944 marks the beginning of the death march of approximately 40,000 Jews from Budapest to Austria. With With the Soviet army rapidly advancing, Adolf Eichmann accelerated efforts to murder the remaining Jews in Hungary before the Red Guard arrived in Budapest. Jesus, they wanted to kill them so fucking badly even while they're retreating. They're like, we got to kill as many as we can as we retreat, even if it meant endangering the lives of uh, German troops to do so. An estimated 50,000 Jews eventually took part in the death march from Budapest to Austria on November of 1944, in which 6,000 to 10,000 died of hunger, cold and disease. The marchers walked 137 miles in seven to eight days. Just a few months later, January 17th, 1945, Auschwitz will be evacuated. First, Nazis murdered most of the Jews who had worked in Auschwitz's gas chambers in crematoria. Then they destroyed most of the other killing sites that were part of the concentration camp's complex, trying to destroy evidence of war crimes. Next, the Germans ordered prisoners to tear down many buildings, and they uh, systematically destroyed many of the meticulous records of camp life. Then as Soviet troops approached, SS units forced nearly 60,000 prisoners to march west. Thousands had been killed in the camps in the days before tens of thousands of prisoners, mostly Jews, forced to march either northwest for approximately 30 miles or due west for approximately 35 miles to other camps, SS guards shot anyone who fell behind or couldn't continue. Our prisoners suffered from the cold weather, starvation, and exposure, and as many as 15,000 died during those evacuation marches. The guards who remained continued to cover up evidence, including burning warehouses full of plundered possessions. By January 21st, most SS officers had left the area, On January 27th, the Soviet Army entered Auschwitz, liberated the more than 7,000 still remaining prisoners, mostly ill and dying people. As they saw the soldiers, the emaciated prisoners hugged them, kissed them, and cried. One of the first Red Army soldiers to step into Auschwitz would later recall, They rushed towards us shouting, fell on their knees, kissed the flaps of our overcoats, and threw their arms around our legs. Conditions obviously appalling. No food, water, fuel. Some prisoners scavenged among the possessions the SS had not managed to destroy. A small group of healthier prisoners attended to the sick. Soviets, shocked by what they saw, they found piles of ash that had once been human bodies, people living in barracks that were covered in literal shit. Many emaciated patients vomited when they ate the food the soldiers offered their bodies too fragile to digest anything. Soldiers found warehouses filled with massive quantities of Jewish belongings, 88 pounds of eyeglasses, 88 pounds, hundreds of prosthetics, 12,000 pots and pans, 44,000 pairs of shoes, Evidence of so many deaths. Eva Moses' Corps was just 10 when she spotted the soldiers, the age of a fourth or fifth grader, one of a group of hundreds of kids who had been left behind. She would later remember how soldiers gave her hugs, cookies, and chocolate. We were not only starved for food, but we were starved for human kindness. The shock soldiers helped set up hospitals on site. Local townspeople volunteered to help. For months, Polish Red Cross workers labored to save the dying and treat the living, working without adequate food or supplies themselves, helping prisoners get in touch with loved ones about 7,500 would survive. After a long, brutal march, more than 10,000 weak and exhausted prisoners from Auschwitz and Gross Rosen, most of them Jews, arrived now in the Buchenwald concentration camp in January of 1945. By February, the number of prisoners in Buchenwald would reach 112,000. In early April, as U.S. forces approached the camp, the Germans began to evacuate. 28,000 prisoners from the main camp, additional several thousand prisoners from sub-camps, An underground resistance organization in Buchenwald, whose members held key administrative posts in the camp, would save many lives. With the Allies approaching, they felt more confident to obstruct Nazi orders and delay the evacuation. April 11th, 1945, in expectation of liberation, prisoners stormed the watchtowers and seized control of the camp. Later that afternoon, U.S. forces enter Buchenwald. Soldiers from the 6th Armored Division, part of the 3rd Army, find more than 21,000 people still alive, most of them extremely emaciated. The Nazi evacuation of the Sockenhausen now began in the early hours of April 21st, 1945. More than 30,000 remaining prisoners marched off in groups towards the Northwest. They can't just fucking leave it alone. It's never enough. They know they're losing. It's their final fucking days. And they're like, nope, we still got to make sure a bunch of these people die. Next day, April 22nd, units of the Soviet and Polish armies uh, you know, find around 3,000 sick prisoners as well as nurses and doctors who've been left behind in the camp. Sadly, 300 of the camp's former inmates, too sick to survive despite just being liberated. They're buried in six uh, mass graves by the camp wall near the infirmary. Finally, some really good news. April 30th, 1945, Hitler commits suicide in his bunker. Uh, He he initially cut off his dick and tried to choke on it, but it just, it went down real easy. He didn't even, it was like taking a vitamin. So now then he shoots himself. Uh, Now he just shot himself. Uh, When the news of his death makes it around the world, millions and millions rejoice. He'd obviously gone down as one of the most hated, if not the most hated person who has ever lived. If hell is real and Hitler is not burning there or being, you know, taking turns being fucked and then fucking Stalin, uh, the devil's doing it all wrong. May 8th, 1945, Germany surrenders. The terror of the Third Reich finally over. Imagine, imagine how much horror the world would have seen between 1945 and now if those motherfuckers had won. It, it's unimaginable now there was still the matter though of dealing with all the Nazis who perpetrated these horrific crimes and that's what we're going to cover along with a lot more about how the Holocaust continues to be thought about today including the insanity of Holocaust deniers next week Uh, and though there is so much more we could have covered today about the Holocaust so many more stories so many individual lives lost to this atrocity I think we covered enough to provide a solid overview so let's hop out of this incredibly long and dark timeline
2: good job soldier you made it back Barely.
1: the holocaust so much disturbing material we went over today sometimes I think it's uh it's easy to get a little numb just hearing a bunch of numbers you know ten thousand die being marched out of this camp, half a million gassed to death at this camp, roving execution squad you know kill a million or so during these three months, five hundred shot one day in this village. You know, maybe two or three executed for fighting back here. Thousand shot dead uh, over there for uh, no longer having value to the Reich. You put faces at the numbers, though, and maybe we can begin to understand how hellish this tragedy was. Approximately 6 million unarmed European Jews, at least 5 million unarmed prisoners of war, uh, Roma, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals, other victims deliberately murdered by the Nazi death machine, plus millions of other random citizens of the various nations they'd occupied. Picture all the people you know. All the people you've seen in the last month, the last year, the last decade, your whole fucking life, replaced all of them with corpses. Imagine every face you can recall being arrested and accosted by brutal soldiers, every man, woman, and child, every baby, all ages, beaten, screamed at, thrown into cattle cars, being taken to a prison built to kill every prisoner inside of it. Prisoners who never committed any crimes. Imagine babies being ripped from their mother's arms, slammed down to the ground. Sons and daughters tore from their husband's arms, father's arms, right? Victims stripped, pushed into gas chambers, spending their final moments in terror, sometimes having just been separated from their families, from their mothers and fathers, young children screaming as everyone around them dies, as they die. Imagine the school you went to as a child or the school you go to now, or your children's school. Imagine soldiers or police killing literally fucking everyone there. Children screaming in terror, tears streaming down their faces, blood everywhere, bullets ripping them down, bayonets impaling them, laughter of Nazis as they die. Imagine whoever you love most in the world being stripped, shaved down, tattooed with a number, starved, beaten. Maybe a doctor decides they want to try something new, put some acid into their veins. Maybe uh, maybe they should get raped with the intention of being given syphilis. This is the fucking horror that was Nazi Germany. This is why it's important to remember what happened, to never deny it, to do everything we can to never repeat it, to be better, so much better than they were. Rather than do a full wrap-up here now, uh, let's head to some takeaways. We'll wrap up the Holocaust Holocaust in full next week.
2: Time suck. Top five takeaways.
1: Number one, the Holocaust was the systematic, bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of roughly six million Jewish men, women, and children by the Nazi regime and their collaborators. German authorities also targeted and killed other groups, including at times their children, because of their perceived racial and biological inferiority. Roma people, Germans with disabilities, Slavic people. They also persecuted and killed people for being ideological or ideological enemies. People like communists, socialists, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals. While there's no list that fully tallies up all of the deaths conclusively, and so uh, many of the deaths have been hidden, Records destroyed as Nazis retreated, estimated that 6 million Jews were murdered, as well as 1.8 million non-Jewish Polish civilians, 7 million Soviet civilians, between 250,000 and 500,000 Roma people, at least 70,000 criminals and other, quote, undesirables, and so many more. Over a million people killed at Auschwitz alone. Number two, the Nazi party mobilized an entire country's resources, along with the resources and countries they invaded, to sustain a killing machine. On the military side, they instructed Eisatzgruppen to roam the Eastern European countryside in search of victims. Victims, they built roads, railways, other infrastructure to support Jewish detainees being shipped to concentration camps. They had a propaganda machine turning out messages of hate to German citizens to make what they were doing feel righteous instead of evil. All of this with the aim of making the killing of Jews faster, more cost-efficient, more systematic. Number three, there are simply so many stories to come out of the Holocaust, all of them worth listening to from the story of Rena Finder at Schindler's factory to Selma Engel, her escape from Sobibor. There are countless stories of bravery, sacrifice, horrors endured, and survival. You can read essays written by Holocaust survivors on the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's website. Behind every name, a story. You can also find testimony of Holocaust victims speaking about their experiences all over the place, YouTube and more. Over 3,000 testimonies exist at the website for the USC Shoah Foundation, a wonderful organization we have donated to in the past. Number four, many world governments, including the U.S., watching the events unfold in Germany simply did not consider it their responsibility to help out the Nazis' victims. Worried about immigration limits, economic issues, sometimes motivated by their own kind of anti-Semitism, they stalled and created a paper barrier to those looking to flee Nazi Germany. Going forward, maybe it's worth taking a hit to our economy. Maybe it's worth losing some votes in order to save innocent fellow humans from an almost unimaginable level of terror. Number five, new info in 1946. Two partners in a leading pest control company, Testa, were tried before a British military court on charges of genocide. Argued that the accused must have realized that the massive supply of Zyklon B they provided the concentration camps was far above the quantity required for delousing. They were convicted and hanged. And we will get into the many ways the Nazis were dealt with when their big death party was finally fucking shut down. Next week in our second episode on the Holocaust.
2: Time suck. Top five takeaways.
1: The Holocaust part one of two build-up and atrocities has been sucked. Uh, I always enjoy learning so much in our historical sucks. Obviously, this content, uh fucking brutal, but important to uh learn and remember. Uh thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, thanks to the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production, thanks to BitElixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Logan the Art Warlock Keith creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and for running socials with Liz the Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks to Sophie Evans for her initial research this week uh, and next week uh, doing that one too. Uh, Great job. Uh, Thanks to the All Seeing Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. Thanks to Becky Jesse the Mod Squad making sure Discord keeps running smooth and the Reverend Dr. Joe for uh, administering all that. Now let's talk about next week's suck. Uh, How do you deal with something like the Holocaust when it's over? For many Germans, it was hard to wrap their heads around the fact that the post-war world saw them as evil. They had been brainwashed that thoroughly. To many, they felt that if they hadn't been doing the right thing, at least they had just been doing their jobs. And it was the Allies who were the real aggressors. Many people, not just Germans, struggled with understanding the cognitive dissonance of an entire country that had mobilized to carry out so many horrific acts. Did that make everyone in Germany evil? How could ordinary people be capable of that? We'll explore the ways some writers and thinkers engage with those questions and how Germany, after occupation, has dealt with its ongoing legacy of the Holocaust. We'll also cover the ways people have tried not to understand the Holocaust. For some, the scope of the horror, just too hard to process. Uh, More than too hard. Impossible. Therefore, must not be true. For others, they just still hated the Jewish people so much, they consciously decided to deny the survivors of the Holocaust the right to be seen as victims of unimaginable evil and instead branded them as liars. Holocaust denial is an especially disgusting type of anti-Semitic propaganda that emerged after World War II. It's the replacing of historical documentation, and a lot of it, with nothing but lies and propaganda fueled by the same anti-Semitism that allowed the Holocaust to happen in the first place. Holocaust deniers generally claim that the Holocaust never happened or that a much smaller number of Jews died, and not through mass murder, but through disease like typhus. They also claim that legitimate accounts of the Holocaust are just uh, propaganda and lies generated by Jews for their own nefarious, trying to control the world, parasitical benefit. Some of these prominent Holocaust deniers are people who used to be historians, uh, super shitty historians, and now they perpetuate this hateful line of thinking for their own financial benefits. So they can claim that uh, they're the ones uncovering the truth and sell lots of books and seminars to ignorant followers. Gonna dive deep on all that crazy shit and more next week. Right now, time for this week's Time Sucker Updates.
2: time
1: sucker updates after all that darkness let's start off with something sweet and really funny to me Uh beautiful bastard joe goodman is pissed off on my behalf and confused he writes hey dan and crew i just want to say five out of five stars it drives me nuts when you read people's emails and they love the show always listen etc and then say three out of five stars what the fuck man it's <laughs> i love it it's free funny well researched what the hell else do they want Anyway, love the show. And again, five out of five from a true fan. Hail Nimrod. <laughs> Keep on sucking Joe. I fucking love you, dude. Oh, I love you so much. and I love this email. Uh, let me clear this out for you because it would be so confusing if you hadn't seen this one, listened to this one episode. In the Drunk as Fuck episode, episode 100, I went off about someone saying that they that they love this book on the Axeman uh, on Amazon, but then gave it three out of five stars. You know, and I think I just said, like, love it, wouldn't change a thing, three out of five stars. And I just outraged about it. And then that joke stuck. And ever since, a lot of people have rated everything we've done as being you know, love it, you know, great, wouldn't change a thing, uh, three out of five stars. So the three out of five rating, uh, it's just been a running joke uh, for something that the people love. So I'm so glad, though, that you saw that. We're just like, What the fuck is happening? Because if I didn't get that joke, I also would be like, why are they doing this? So thank you. Thank you for the five out of five and for the very kind message. Love you. Now for an Epstein update from a uh, now free sucker, Sarah Alexander, who shares some inside incarceration info, writing, what's up, Master Sucker? So no shit, there I was driving down the road on a five-hour trip to visit an old friend. I'm listening to the episode on Vladimir Putin. Strong pony boy. Uh, I'm listening to the Time Sucker updates, and you read the email from the great anonymous meat sack who had worked as a corrections officer. They explain the workings of SHU and how the incarceration system works, how maybe Jeffrey Epstein really did commit suicide and was not murdered. Well, don't put away the tinfoil hats yet. It is still possible that it wasn't suicide. Let me give you a bit of information from someone who's been incarcerated. Now, I don't want to discredit that uh, that anonymous sucker at all. A lot of what they had to say was absolutely true. The info about the cameras, how solitary housing units work, how to gain access in and out of them, and so on. However, I did spend a couple years in prison myself. And from my perspective, it still seems possible that Epstein was murdered. To clarify a bit, I was incarcerated in a prison in Iowa. It was only the once, and uh, other than this two or so years that I was locked up, I really have no experience of the inner workings of the correctional system. I'm not a habitual offender. I'm by no means an expert. But that being said, where I was had different levels of solitary housing and the supervision on each level varied. For troublemakers, i.e. people who staged fights or started fights or were part of a PRIA investigation, they would be housed in the maximum security level uh, that would be just as that last sucker described. Most people called that unit the whole. Everyone had to be verified by the CEO on duty. They would make super frequent rounds. You'd have to be buzzed in through two sets of doors, et cetera. If Epstein was in a unit like that, then yeah, murder is highly unlikely. But where I was, there was three levels of mental health units in the same high security building. The top level and the one directly below it was reserved for people who were on active suicide watch or just coming out of suicide watch. In these areas, there was a lot less protocol to enter and exit and less locked doors. Inmates would come and go from these units because they would have other inmates help keep an eye on the suicide risk inmates. They had inmates in their, quote, working the suicide watch at all hours of the day. This job was made available due to overcrowding and understaffing. In a situation like this, it's, it is possible that another inmate could have gained access to Epstein. Not super likely, but possible. Uh, it is my understanding that prisons are all very different in their own ways. Also, prison jobs are hard to keep filled. I know where I was at, the COs didn't get paid very well. They usually had to work uh, shitty shifts surrounded by assholes who did nothing but suck the soul from your being or just plain violent, uh, next to impossible to get time off when you need it. Constantly work mandatory overtime, double shifts, et cetera. So it also is entirely possible that a guard or two were just paid off. When talking about the high-powered people who could have potentially pulled this off, to them, a couple hundred thousand, that's nothing. But to a person in a shit job at the end of the rope, it's enough to get out. Or maybe I just want to believe that conspiracy hype. At the end of the day, we may never know. Holy balls, that was much longer than I thought it would be. I hope it was at least an interesting spin uh, on perspective for the conspiracy crowd. Thank you for all things bad magic. I love everything you do. Hail Nimrod. Good boy, Bojangles. I like what you're doing, Lucifina. Uh Keep up the good work. Three out of five stars. And uh, keep on sucking. Loyal Space Lizard and creepy Annabelle, Sarah. Uh, P.S. I doubt this will make an episode, but if it does, please give a shout out to my fiance, Eric. Let him know I will get him some of Woody's demon rape repellent as soon as he gives me five bucks. Well, Eric, congrats on your engagement to Sarah. She must really care about you for you not to want, uh, for her to not want you, you know, to be raped by ghosts and demons and shit. So that's love. Uh, Real quick, I I didn't know what Priya stood for before your message, Sarah. So it stands for Prison Rape Elimination Act. So, yeah, someone part of a pre-investigation, someone being investigated for sexual abuse. Um, Yeah, you know, I wonder also about the money. I mean, you could probably keep a lot of mouths quiet, especially for like several million dollars, especially if people paid lots and lots of money, uh, would you know, go to prison themselves if they talked to anybody about what had happened. Like you say, we may never know, but the whole understaffed, overtired, not paid well situation does keep the conspiracy alive for me at least a little bit. Okay, so thank you for that. Uh, now, before our last one, second to last one, an, an abortion-related message from a super sucker with a different opinion, which is great. Uh, Hearthleaf, Stromdahl, Stromdahl, uh, writes, sorry, uh, Herthleaf, I've never seen your name before, uh, as far as uh, in anybody else, your first name. Uh, so Herthleaf writes, does Dan consider a healthy eight-month-old fetus a viable candidate for abortion? If an unwanted pregnancy results in a child, why assume the mother has to raise it? It can be placed in an orphanage, given a chance to live. Love the show, big fan of Bojangles. Will you bring up good points, Hearthleaf? right? First off, no, I don't consider a uh, healthy eight-month-old fetus a good candidate for abortion. Currently 43 states prohibit abortions after a specified point in pregnancy with some exceptions provided The allowable circumstances generally, uh, you know, when an abortion necessary to protect the, the mother's life or health, uh, most states already don't allow abortions at 20 weeks or later, except in cases, excuse me, of risk to the mother's life, which equates roughly to just over four and a half months. So almost no one is advocating for abortions at eight months. That's not what the current debate is about. Uh, yeah. And I don't advocate that, but at six weeks. Like in Texas, many women don't even know they're pregnant is a problem. Uh, six weeks, a fetus, not as, uh, you know, not much more than a collection of non-sentient cells. No higher thought processes exist. Uh, six week old fetus, arguably no more intelligent or capable of, you know, uh, future intelligence than uh, say the sperm men and teen boys, you know, jerk off wherever or eggs that are menstruated out. And to me, I know many will disagree. Uh, but to me, no more emotion needs to be attached to a six week old fetus than to a menstruated egg or to a random pool of sperm. But that's not even what I'm arguing. I just don't think making abortions illegal is going to stop them. I think it will just make them more dangerous. So I'm against it in the way I am against, uh, prostitution being illegal, drug abuse being illegal, you know, those same grounds. Uh, to clarify things further, uh, just like I think women should be able to make the best personal choice for them regarding abortion. I also think doctors should get the right to refuse to perform an abortion right? I'm a, a big freedom advocate at the end of the day. And I would never pressure anyone to have wanted abortion. I just don't want to force what I feel may be right for me on someone in a position I've never been in. Uh, I feel it's a woman's issue a position I couldn't even understand. Uh, it's a personal issue and that it's not right for me to weigh in on it is how I feel. Yes, a fetus is a separate life, but prior to around 22 weeks, a fetus cannot live independently outside of the womb. And until it can, you know, it's a life not of its own. It's part of its mother's life and the choice, good or bad, right or wrong, I think should fall to her and her alone. Yes, a man had to help make it, but we don't incubate them. Huge difference to me there. And I know many will never agree with me, and I don't hate those who disagree. It's just, uh, you know, what I believe is the best way to handle what to me is an extremely ethically murky situation. I appreciate you expressing disagreement in a respectful way, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, As far as orphanages, adoption goes, yeah. I mean, anybody can give up a baby for adoption, but again, I just don't want to force someone to incubate a life inside of them that they do not want. Uh, and I don't know that I have the right answers, but I know that discourse is is a good way to try and get there. We need more healthy discourse in society to be able to talk about what we strongly disagree with. Uh, many of you do a better job a better job of that than I do, by the way, with your awesome messages. Uh, and, then, and then discourse leads me to our final message. Badass SLC sucker, Brett Davis has a message I love to read. Hope you love to hear it. He writes, just wanted to take a minute to write you a note. I've been looking forward to your show in Salt Lake City since November when I bought tickets to Friday night's show. Unfortunately for me, fortunately for my friend, I had a grandpa pass away last week and a cousin passed unexpectedly the same day. I had a shooting class scheduled for last weekend, but with having the funerals to go to, I had to change it. My options were limited to either this coming weekend or say goodbye to the money for that class. Sorry to cut you out of my plans for the weekend, but if you would give a shout out Friday night to my friend, Charlie, he's my best friend and uh, and he's been... Uh, There for me through a lot. We were looking forward to a night of being irreverent and entertained at your show Thanks to uh, life. I get to miss out I also want to take a minute to say thank you for all you do to entertain me Thank you for voicing your opinion on politics, even though you and I disagree on things It has been eye-opening for me to hear other opinions and points of view I have a close family member involved in congress. So sometimes I get stuck in an echo chamber and I appreciate breaking out I'll never hate you for your opinion And I have really learned to listen to everyone's opinions before making my decisions Thanks to you. I'm not just assuming I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Uh, Thanks for all you do, Dan. And thanks for what you taught me, time sucker, Brett. Brett, I fucking love you, dude. Wish there were more of you. Sorry about your cousin and your grandpa. Uh, Sorry you'd have to miss the show, but I get it. And I wish you the best of luck at that class. Uh, Good on you for gun safety. Good on you for being able to hear the opinions of others that you don't agree with. I try and do the same. I really do. I have uh, friends and family who have, uh, you know, who voted for Trump. And you know what? Great people. I have friends and family who voted for Biden. Also, great people. Too many people can't seem to understand that that is possible. Uh, Keeping you, Brett. Keep setting a good example. Uh, good luck shooting. Hell fucking Nimrod. And let's skedaddle. What a long one today. So much info.
2: Next time, suckers, I needed
1: that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the Bag Meat Sacks. They're not always going to be uh, three-hour fucking leviathans, I promise. Uh, Please don't take part in attempting the systematic annihilation of an entire race of people this week, or any week. Instead, help avoid thoughts of doing anything like that by, uh, you know, continuing to keep on uh, sucking.
2: Bad Magic Productions. My, my music hits me so hard. Makes me say, oh, my Lord, thank you for blessing me with the mind to rhyme. And two hot feet feels good when you know you're down. A super dope homeboy from an oak town I'm knowing as such. And this is a beat you can't touch. I told you, homeboy, you can't touch this. It's a strong pony boy beat living how you know. You can't touch this from me I will take everything from you But you cannot touch nothing from me Funky lyrics and bands You got it like that You want to dance So get up and fucking get up and dance I command you I'll fucking kill your family if you don't dance Like that Pull on the mission Fall on your back Let them know that you're too much This is a beat that you can't fucking touch for nothing You can't touch this Glory be to Russia